in front of a live studio audience. It's the Crash Chords Show with Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. John, a.k.a. nothing in particular. <laughs> Steve, a.k.a. <laughs> Why are you breathing so loud? <laughs> I don't know. And, uh, Imagine if we did this. I mean, we have done... Could we get Drew Carey? Faked a studio Drew audience Carey. every no, we time. Can get Drew Carey. No, no, no. Like, he's, like, he's really good well, doing that sort of well, stuff. I was going to say, stuff. me and Steve yes. did in front of a live studio audience for autographs with Joe uh, Master Piero at Vinyl Day. That is we've true. we've not done this show in front of a live studio audience that yet. That is true. Well, Though I've considered it. At the way station a while back when, when uh, Andy was looking to fill certain nights of the week because he was still working up to getting tons and tons of bands, I had offered the idea of doing like auto, uh, crash chords there and like getting everybody in on the album listen. Well, we'd have to open it up to a Q&A at some point. Otherwise, right. it would be a little bit boring. What do you think, <coughs> listeners? And then, yeah, then things would get thrown at us. But hopefully it would be perfectly balanced, the shots of whiskey, so that they don't spill over and we could drink while we're discussing the album. So it's probably a really good thing that we've never actually been in a bar while discussing an album because I'm obligated to drink in a bar. I mean, like, you're not. You can be can be in a bar and not drink. It's a no. It's a it's a family tradition. <laughs> it really is a. Fa- My brother right. works in a bar. Let's warm up with the Q and A now. What, what do you th- what do you think, listeners? They There's can't a bar hear. In they, it. they can't. Hear. They can't respond. Well, they can't hear they you. Can, yes, they that can is hear. Not true. They yeah. can totally respond. We have responses. In fact, we've had several responses over Just the last few days. They can't as of this thanks, moment Star in F. time. Thanks, yeah, yeah, right, Thanks. All right. Well, uh, moving on into what we're here to do today and who we're here to talk about. Um, which the. Uh, Artist of the day is Mr. Andrew McMahon, who I've been a fan of for a while, though didn't quite realize it. Um, Andrew McMahon, of course, is better known as Something Corporate, Jack's Mannequin, and of course his newest band, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, which actually has his name in it. Um, I'd seen them open for Weezer. Um, uh, it was, I believe, them, Panic at the Disco, and then, of course, Weezer headlining with still, John. Yeah, still jealous about Still jealous. Um, and I hadn't realized, even up until the moment we saw them, that those three things were the same. And then Molly and Alex and Robert, who I've seen the show with, all friends of the show, members of the Wasties and more, <laughs> uh, uh, asterisk, or however you want to do that. Extra. Extra. Um, they did point out that this is the same guy who did those, who was those bands and did those songs, and I got very excited because I'm a fan of the previous two bands and hadn't realized the connection because I guess I just hadn't really looked that far into them. I was just a fan of the work kind of from a 10,000-foot view. And I, I actually remember you mentioning this in your interview with Cat Pace, which I excruciatingly transcribed, and I would like to remind you of that every single time. You can remind me all you want. You volunteered. I did volunteer. So, it took me about a month, but I finally did it. It's true. Uh, but yeah, and I, I did not uh, connect it to something corporate at the time because you didn't mention something corporate. And Correct. something corporate is the only iteration of him that I am aware of. Uh, I'm relatively spieless today, but just enough, just it's important that I get a little bit out about my experience with something corporate because it's both it's both removed and yet present at the same time, if that makes any sense. I knew people who really loved something corporate, so I guess that makes it a second. 
secondhand band, you know, like sure. our, our Wilco conversation. <laughs> uh, but most of those people were high school girls, it should be pointed out. And in re-listening to some of it now, it was not a wave of deja vu. It's more like a mild ripple, just this gentle, slight reminder of some hard-to-place background music to my youth, I guess. But, but secondhand, always secondhand. It's a band that I would not put on, but that others would, and that I didn't love but didn't mind. I don't know how much more non-committal I can be about this so far, but their overall sound definitely pulls me back in time a little bit, but not to anything particularly full of gravity in my life. It's just places, events, hangouts, hangout days. I'm not going to call it, you know, department store music. It's not that kind of background music, but I wouldn't be surprised if I heard it there because, of course, they did get a lot of radio play. I also heard it in other car radios, stores, and bedroom stereos at speaking volume. So literally background music for my life. Ditto. All right. <laughs> All I, right. Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah. So this it, is why it, you it, don't need spiels, because yeah. you can just say ditto. Well, because he's so eloquent. Well, That's not it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I just feel I should be honest about my experience, just so that my bias, or really my lack of bias for this band, is completely clear. And I was still very eager to see what a more mature Andrew McMahon could turn out in his later years. Uh, it actually helps that I'm on jury duty this week, so my chest is currently swelling with phrases like civic duty and burden of proof and dispassionate assessment, as we like to throw around on the show a little bit. So yeah, I'm like, I know a little something about that, you know? Doing this for five years. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> the stakes are a little different, though. Um, and yeah, and so my experience, well, what led me to want to do his new record was that um, Andrew McMahon and the Wilderness at that show were very entertaining. High energy, a lot of fun, some dancey tunes, and pretty much a lot of what I remembered from Something Corporate and Jack's Mannequin. And so I, when I found out that the new album had just come out, I was like, well, let's take it on. I've definitely heard some of those songs. And so I was interested to see where he was post-leukemia because when I got into him, I got more into him at the Jack Man Jack's Mannequin stage, which was when he was still suffering and recovering. Right. And so there was a different, I don't want to say tone necessarily to the music, but there's definitely... Not heart either, but there was definitely a different emotional center. Like, you could tell it was coming from someone who was suffering, who was confused, who was scared. Whereas this music that we're reviewing today, at least, and we'll get into it a bit when we start talking about the album, does seem a little more confident, at least. It doesn't yeah. seem as harrowed as his previous records have. Yeah, and if you go as far back as something corporate, I recall a mild introspection to the music as a whole. Yeah, and so I think it's... Not like, you know deep-dwelling kind of stuff, but mildly, you know, looking at the moment. I think John put it well before the show that he doesn't look far back in time. He looks recent past, and he sort of takes each and every album just like it's another step in his life. He overcomes. Next next chapter. Yeah, for sure. All of his music has been very much rooted in the present and recent past, dealing with problems, concerns, and struggles of the time. All He's right. never, like, going all the way back to, like, when I was a boy. Like, there's really no right. songs about that. That... I was going to save that for my wrap-up. Well, Your wrap-up? Yeah, Spoiler that, alert. that was something I was going to use as a yeah, crux but that's, of my no, wrap-up. No, but that's a nice overall description well, of him as an artist. That, that goes is, at the top of the show. Yeah, his inspiration seems to be actually what's directly in front of him, directly affecting him at any given point, not you know childhood traumas or anything like that, the high school sweetheart or anything of that sort. It feels like he's being more reactionary to something as opposed to being contemplative about something. And I think that's why I've identified with a lot of his previous hits is because 
if you're in that moment and he's living very much in the moment, it can resonate pretty strongly, even if it's not particularly unique and he's singing about things that have happened to other people. Um, not to diminish his experiences, but just saying it's stuff that other artists have covered as well. Um, but the last thing I'll say on Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness is I think, and I've mentioned this a few times already, the live music really impacted me and gave me an expectation for this album, as all bands do. If you hear their new record on tour before the album's released, you have an expectation based on the live performance, which doesn't always match up. Um, and whether it does here or not, we'll get into. But that's kind of what drove me to choose this album in the end, is it was an artist I respected and liked. It was something new that I enjoyed live. I wanted to see how it did in the studio. And so with that, let us get into the album art for Zombies on Broadway by Andrew McMahon in The Wilderness. I rather liked this album art, to be honest. First of all, the whole split-screen deal with, uh, obviously, his face is consistent. At least there's that. But it's different backgrounds completely. The left, I don't know exactly what to make of that. It's almost like a like a shag carpet or something. A it seems like the wall in a backdrop. club or something. Like, you know, it, playing like an old jazz club. No, those are always bricks. <laughs> it's more of a uh, kind of like a stucco or compound backdrop that was, you know, done up in reds. That's the kind of look. This is drawing from my, you know, experience in construction equipment and things like that. Well, drawing from my experience in Crash Chords, this actually reminds me of episode 61, uh, Hesitation Marks by Nine Inch Nails, which had the same shade of red. The same deep shade of red. I remember that album cover vividly, and I remember liking that in the same way, except that that's only half, literally half of this album cover, because on the right you have... Cityscape. And he's wearing a, a space helmet of some kind, or just it, a pilot's helmet, maybe? It looks uh, as much like a old-school cosmonaut, like predating yeah. mm-hmm. uh, our, uh, the NASA space program, but like an old-school cosmonaut, or even um, a diver's helmet. Yeah. I do want to point out, there are some changes in his, his face as well. Like, on the left, it's very pale... Whereas on the right, it seems almost tanned, like weathered or like being out in the sun. That is very subtle. But, but, I it, but you see can it. see the dividing line. You sure I, that's not an illusion based on it's the, not. No, it's, the it's, light? Well, it's, if you want to get really close to the mm-hmm. actual picture, his nose is actually a little bit off kilter. And the difference in the shading between the two actually, for me, is a little bit... It's a little bit of an overlook on the artist's part. The Not just the facial... Uh, shading differences, but the actual suit itself, I've seen artwork like this before, multiple times in music, in general art, and usually there's a better blend between the two pieces. Well, to clarify, I don't mean, yeah, it's not an illusion that it's actually, the face is consistent, because of course it's not. The yeah. face, it looks consistent, That's it reminds me of, you know, Pink Floyd, Division Bell, and whatnot. Right. There is a split, but it's meant, you can kind of interpret it two different ways. In this case, there were two different pictures taken of him, and yeah. then they're just spliced together. Yeah. Um, now, the reason I paused at Cityscape is because I'm not accustomed to seeing this particular angle, but of course, we do have a very New York-centric album right here, and mm-hmm. I believe that's New York, because that's a very new landmark. Yeah. So, as of like six or seven years ago, I would have been like, what is this city? I'm not aware of it. But this is the only building, I don't, I don't I forget the exact address, I think it's either on Madison Avenue or Park, it's all residential, it's the highest residential building in the world, unless the Burj Khalifa actually tops it, if there are some penthouses way up there, I'm not sure. But this is the only building uh, to be taller than the Empire State Building 
in New York City, apart from the Freedom Tower or the late World Trade. Right. So, yeah, that's uh, unique because it's such, it's such a strange building. It's not really as standout-ish as the Empire State Building. It doesn't have too many signature features about it except for that strange, tall, stilted figure that makes it look like it's going to topple over at any second. It's, it's just it's a stick in space. Right. What's interesting, I think, is the way this was shot, if he's actually in front of that cityscape or not, because it's kind of hard to tell with as limited view as we get, yeah. it could have just easily been photoshopped. Just a green but, screen. But just assuming that he is actually on a building with that view, I think that's kind of really interesting because of the way the the background is not completely in focus. It's a little blurry. It's a little phased out. I actually would say that that's the one bit of credibility as far as the blending goes. That it's For me, it's actually kind of obvious that it was two separate photographs. Yeah. Uh, because if you're doing this inside of a studio or something like that, you could easily replicate lighting to match one to the other. And considering he looks to be like two shades darker on the city. Maybe he's on guy, location. He's yeah. actually probably on location. I mean, still, it's something that you could probably blend through. And considering the amount of touch up that you can easily do on the front of Vanity Fair or something like that, like, sure. You might, you I like that natural. it's not touched up like that, though. I like that there's a stark division between the f- two photos. As if I don't know. Well, it's one of the, the reasons why. One of the reasons why I bring up, you know, the cityscape in the back is because you had brought up the fact that he looks a little more weathered and confident on yeah. the right hand side. In which case, it helps to put him high above everything else. Right. Sure. And that's a pretty good marker to be at the level of the top of that building. Well, sure. And the idea of wearing a cosmonaut helmet, this idea of adventure. Yeah. I mean, those old helmets—that's what they represented, pretty much, yeah. is adventure and exploration. And yeah. so I think. That's part of it as well. And why they would choose this particular landmark, which is not something people yet know about New York City as being a New York landmark. It probably will soon, if if not already, in certain circles. But, you know, it's on the face of it, he had so many other things to choose why that building, and that could be the reason. Right, or it could be happenstance. I mean, we've we've talked at length about... You know, ruminations on certain things in songs and in pictures, and then had the artists themselves tell us, "Well, actually, it was this." But I love your respective discussion of it. Yeah. So you know, it could just be happenstance that it's it's like that as well. Like that's just where they could get a good shot. Well, it's tough to picture exactly where he would be standing to get that yeah, shot. I know that's what's interesting to me. Maybe Empire. Hmm. I'm gonna analyze this further. Uh, well, I'll get back to you. Yeah, all right. I'll you get do back that because I don't want to. So you do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I like his suit. I'll, I'll conclude I do. with that. Yes, I do too. <laughs> I, I like a sharp blue suit. They they pop. And it, it does pop in this picture in both scenes, both with the background and with the red. It does kind of stand out, which I like. I, I think that's just because you love the Tenth Doctor so much. Oh, I God. don't love the Tenth Doctor at all, really. That is not true. We've had these conversations. No, it is and true. This is something that we're going to put ninth, a pin in. The Ninth Doctor is my favorite. And then I like Capaldi better than the other two. So you're wrong. I've never said I like the Tenth Doctor. That is not true. Uh, that is I've true. had these discussions. We've not. Sidetracked, unnecessary, moving forward. Um, Zombies intro, track one, uh, only 27 seconds long. Instrumental? It's not really. It's, no, it's an ambient. No. It's ambient. Not even ambient. It's not music. It's, it's, it's field no. recordings. I didn't say it was an ambient track. I said it was ambience. Okay. That's ambiance. Ambiance. There you go. There we go. The the, the extra emphasis. See what, a, see what a weak break does to us? <laughs> it's, it's subway noises. 
It will, yeah. It, it's the it. sound of a commute. It's the sound of the subway. I have more of a spiel on this track than I had, I think, on Andrew Bingman himself. And that's because this is, all right, it's not really a song. It's not a piece even. It really is just field recordings of the subway. Sounds of the subway, you hear that unforgettable, you know. It's not, please stand clear of the closing doors, please. You hear something else, a different recording. One of the many recordings that they have, ready to go at a moment's notice. But, you know, being New Yorkers, him being a New Yorker, it's all pretty familiar stuff to us. But as may definitely have come up in this show before, I like subways. I like subways a lot. I'm actually pretty obsessed with them. I could stand in a station and skip train after train just for the sake of watching them go by, just soaking it in, or even skip around the system freely to far corners of the city, as you're far more able to here, because once you're in the fare-free zone, that's kind of what makes the MTA great over that of other cities where they charge you by the stop. Uh, but yeah, all just to experience the far-flung regions of the city, experience the, the station itself, it's nice time to think. I like that stuff, but not everybody does. A lot of it is very, uh, I guess, mundane for most people. It's just that it's something they have to do in order to get from A to B. And so I, I imagine it probably differs as to what you glean from that environment. I would imagine that for you grow growing up and living in Staten Island and not being able to take the train anytime, it's only when you're going to Brooklyn or the city or whatever, right. you, you might look at it differently than someone who's lived in Brooklyn or Manhattan their whole life, takes right. the train every day to and from work, takes it to go to the supermarket takes to go everywhere yeah. would definitely have a different perspective of it. True. It's, if it's just a part of your... Yeah, we're all Staten Islanders here, so I guess right. once, you know, we made the jump to doing that on a more regular basis from our childhood. It was yeah. a nice It was a nice little elevator. It's like a step up in the world. Sure. I forget I forget which historian actually said that, like, the the one-mile crossing from Brooklyn into Manhattan is is like going to the moon each and every time you do it because it always feels like you've actually made progress in your life. I mean, I would There was a historian who said this in the 90s, actually, for the big documentary that Rick Burns did about New York City. Now, I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember who it was either. Yeah. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Or Steve will put that a correction. That, that guy. guy. That guy. That guy. Um, but yes, no, that's true. And I do, do sometimes feel that when I'm on the queue going over the bridge. Like, it's cool to see the cityscape and yeah. see and to look out. And not just that, the personal feeling of progress as yeah. you're doing it. But I, the thing is, this is just one. You don't even have the visual here. No, you just have just audio. the audio, 27 seconds of it only. And, it, you know, it kind of reminded me, actually, of, of Sting's 57th and 9th concept and the things that were on his mind as he crossed that intersection every day to get to the studio, it seems very much like that. It had meaning to him, for sure, and this track does get something across in that vein, but that doesn't mean I'm going to marry this track, and that's where I kind of want to pull back a little bit. Despite everything I just said, I didn't think that the soundbite alone, the field recording alone, was a particularly inventive or alluring intro for what this album was. Like, it, it felt like it could have been bulked up a little bit, or perhaps, you know, turned into something musical alongside it. But it's just a standalone 27-second intro without anything yet going in. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really seem to serve much of a purpose other than to be what it is. Yeah. And so, well. <laughs> which I don't know that I would fault it for. I don't know. I'm kind of torn on it because what, like for me I said and it actually hackled Steve a little bit that this reminds me of my commute it feels personal and Steve's right he chimed up, chimed up and said but it's not personal you and hundreds of thousands of other people do that every day and he's right the writer's personal is to me intense. right it's personal to me but also 
is that really personal if other people experience the same exact thing? Well, it does imply that he wants you to take your own experience right. with it if he doesn't exactly. have his own stuff going in. But let me elaborate on why, because, like, all right, I'm going back and forth here. That that, that lends to your point a little bit. Yeah. But but pulling back, I think the reason why it, it bothered me at the end of the day is because soundscapes, sound bites, especially extended standalone field recordings, are natural art in their way. It, yeah. it might require some clever microphone positioning and also like a conceptual trust in the natural poignancy of the given environment but in the end the environment speaks for itself and should speak for itself and 27 seconds of it is not really enough time to immerse yourself without the external click to say hey this this has meaning this has meaning beyond simply what it is yeah you know and and i guess especially considering we know nothing at this stage and track two doesn't really make musical use of it it makes thematic use of it only in a a loose sense and we've been down that road before but that's kind of an incomplete serving if that makes any sense that's just one half of the puzzle no, I would agree. I think you need the theme and the music together. Yeah, I mean, again, I I don't think this is you get me. <laughs> this isn't pushing the theme along. This isn't a grand concept. Like I would say, use of this kind of stuff, but in a more specifically honed way, is when we listen to Schaefer's album. Yeah. You know, which we haven't listened reviewed on the show, but we've talked about at length. And like he uses train several times on that record to convey location and and timing and narrative there's none of that here there's no narrative he, here. he did have a track that was dedicated to fighting the evil metallic serpent which was the train which yeah i got the joke it yeah. was kind of it's kind of a joke that happens a lot a lot of like displaced comedy and everything like that but well, he did a thing. great job there's in also a it. lot of comedy on that album yeah. so as a result you kind of know that that's a little bit of the angle here right. you don't have the angle no yet yeah in the first again track. I, I go back to what i said there is no narrative here for me because i actually haven't really weighed in one way or the other i was just i i was just nonplussed by this track sounds. i was sounds yeah <laughs> i'm just i'm just done with it it's it was a thing it happened i did not think it really did anything at all either as a positive or a negative to the album. It was just 30 seconds of there. Yeah, and I ended up being in the same position. Yeah, I think we all came to the same place. We had had different thought processes. I had to establish what I did because, you know, it would normally be something that is more impactful. It's something you would normally coo over, definitely. It (laughs) normally depends on context. You know, one of the reasons those moments have meaning in our lives, if they're on our commute, it has to do with where we're going or what we were feeling at the given time. But, you know, this didn't really have that context. So... It leaves us only to go on to track two, Brooklyn, You're Killing Me. And of course, right there, you have that thematic crossover, literally crossing over the bridge back to the suburbia. I mean, I believe there's a little bit of a story behind this. He was living in Brooklyn for a little while, I think because he had friends there or something. Um, and he actually liked the long commute at the time. He liked the long commute, I guess, for the exact reasons that we that I said at the outset. You know, it gives you the time to think when you're on your way to the studio. So it really, the same, it had the same concept as, as Sting's album, except that Sting was obviously a lot closer. And I think in the end, Andrew McMahon did leave Brooklyn to go into Manhattan to actually become more like Sting and make his commute a lot shorter. I'm not exactly sure what the reasons were, but that begs a look at the lyrics here as to why he did that. Obviously, you need to look no further than the title, Brooklyn, You're Killing Me. Well, yeah, which is not actually an uncommon feeling living in Brooklyn with property costs 
going up and up and up. And Brooklyn actually out costing large chunks of Manhattan now, where it's more expensive to live in Brooklyn than in Manhattan. Cost mm. of living rises, where while well, wages well, are not. And in, so in, in Brooklyn, you get depends the on illusion. Well, yes. You get the illusion that you may one day have a lawn. Yeah. Like there's that. Like you might have a backyard. Hey, there are parts in Greenwich Village actually that have little backyards. That's very true. Extremely little. Like you can't fit a pool little. Yeah. Nah, but but you'd Still be surprised sad. how how big they are because of the <laughs> strange little uh, geography of Greenwich Village itself being so old. Um, yeah, I really wanted the podcast to be about that, but it's not. It's no, really it's not. about the music here. <laughs> it's about the so music. So let's get into. Let's talk a little bit about this track. So. Um, if you're a fan of Andrew McMahon's work in the past, you'll notice some familiar patterns here from the very start. We've got some piano and synth mix. There's no actual drums. It's drum machine here keeping the beat. And the only thing that's at the outset seems a little strange is the way he engages in the verse when it first starts. I do like the way he's presenting his vocals in this one. Uh, it feels kind of beck a little, a little bit, bit less gravelly than what you would normally get, but I do enjoy his pacing. I do enjoy the vocals themselves in the verses. It's very reminiscent of spoken word here, you know, kind of just uh, flatly sta- saying these statements. There's a little bit of inflection, uh, upturns here and there, but more more or less it is spoken. He's not singing here. Well, it was, you know, it's a spoken stream of consciousness. Yes. And I think that's what he wanted to get across, because if you have the introspection there based on the place that you're in, if you're commuting, whatever, then I guess this is kind of how your your thoughts are going to be translating. My heart is a troubled captain in poison television waters. I have this air-conditioned nightmare, like that book that you gave me last summer, that made me think that everything was so much worse than it really was. My heart is a troubled captain, but let's not get caught up in the weather. I could keep searching for the meaning, try to keep this all together. But you've got green eyes like the forest. I got lost on the way to some other life. I... Not a hundred percent sure what he's trying to tell me. He's telling yeah, me little... things. I don't know what they're actually leading up to. Mostly because the personification of Brooklyn in the chorus, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, my dear, mm. Brooklyn, my dear, you're killing me. Well, does Brooklyn got the green eyes? Like yes, that, he's that's personi- He's personifying Brooklyn. He's treating this song like a breakup song with Brooklyn, essentially. I. That's what I thought it's originally. It's a song about breaking up with Brooklyn, essentially. That's what I had taken it originally then. But but here's the thing, especially in the second verse, beneath this low-rise second city that's turning good men into liars, specifically this low-rise second city, uh, I would say that he's talking in multiple fronts. I don't think that's, the this, you... I really... I'm not 100% that the you of the verses is Brooklyn. I'm not going to be fully committed to that. It, it doesn't 100% mesh up with how you would keep these pronouns, first person, second person, well, third yeah, person, the fir- together. The second verse seems more like it's actually about a significant other, a person he had feelings for. Yeah, it's 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 a little bit wishy-washy I mean, first, on its the, commitment towards the, it. I mean, the first verse could easily be... <coughs> Brooklyn could be a person in the sense that he's referring to someone he loved or had feelings for, but is calling them Brooklyn instead. Is also a possibility, you know, where you kind of it is well, actually a name. <laughs> well, and also it's this idea of maybe applying a place to the person. So you're talking about the person, but not referring to them by name. You're referring to them by where they were born or located. But that doesn't actually make sense in the grand scheme because I was baptized in your parents' pool in Southern California. Then I fled. 
your parents' pool in Southern California, going back to where his um, roots are, implies that the person he's talking to is also from California? Well, they could Originally? Been, mm, they could be from Brooklyn, but live in California. I, okay, that's a stretch. That's a stretch you're making right here on How? this sort of a thing. Because you're saying that a transplant from New York living in California inspired him to go from California to New York. Yeah, that does happen. But that's oddly specific series of events for something like this. Well, the like funny this. thing is I was still leaning toward personification at that moment. I was baptized in your parents' pool. It makes me wonder exactly who the who the who he's personified because he shifts who he personifies in that case so i'm not really you have to know more about his life i guess in order to to dive into this but but i mean the lyrics should stand on their own whether we know about his personal life or not and it's true at at its core the verse work here i do like the delivery the lyrics are okay they're not mind-blowing but they are not overly simple either they were because they were shrouded and they were they didn't make me think and i'll give it definite credibility for that the big issue i got is the chorus and kind of how brain dead it seems to go on it so it's just it's just a really solid repetition of that one idea it's it's a little bit plaintive but all said and done it, it comes off a little bland especially because the chorus is chopping up the music the way I don't like choruses to do in pop music. Well, here's the deal. I mean, to speak to the music side of things, you know, verse one, I was actually kind of intrigued. Not just by his speaking style, but I actually kind of liked the static drum combination between the static and the drums and also the piano developing in the background. Not, Not developing, but it's there, it's bright, it stands out considerably in the mix, and everything is just kind of tempered for the spoken stream of consciousness that is his verses. But the chorus was a major, major drag to me, and mainly because of this anthemic approach, but not in the same way as we always tend to kind of, you know, demonize anthemic courses. There are times to have them, and I actually think this would have been the chance for a more serious one, with the ironic twist of there being a breakup. You know, all the previous tracks that you know in that vein are usually pure odes. For instance, Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, the uh, New York State of Mind, Billy Joel, and Empire State of Mind, with the Alicia Keys Jay-Z collaboration. But, so every Every generation's got to have that one. This would actually be a nice little twist for the breakup track for that same thing, but it should not lose the same anthemic quality. Instead, what he does is he he tempers it, he he squashes it down into what's almost a, a childish characterization of it. Maybe that's the point, but there's not enough that's really, you know... Rye at this point in the album. It's it's the it actually sounds like Ring Around the Rosie that Brooklyn Brooklyn my dear you know you're killing me and I almost got the sense that this was the kind kind of track that would appeal again ironically to the Brooklyn crowd so that they could have their their talks about like yeah Brooklyn's great but it also sucks at the same time. I mean it does definitely leave something to be desired. I think. You guys were a lot more heavily affected negatively by the course than I was, but I would, to steal a line from John, I was definitely nonplussed by it. Like, yeah. I didn't really... In fact, the way Steve keeps singing it, which is not perfectly representational of the melody, but similar... I'm just doing the beginning. Right, right. But it reminds me of old Blink stuff that also had that very childish kind of see, sing-songy delivery. I can hear that. I can actually hear it in my head easily yeah, in yeah. comparison and between so, Blink and this. And so I think... This might have worked in a song that was sing-songy straight through. The problem is we lose a break in the through line because, again, the verses were very kind of 
passionately and starkly delivered, and that's just gone in the chorus. It's not there. And then we also get the bridge, which ends up being like a little bit of a ditty, sort of a deconstruction kind of a moment to lead up into the second-to-last chorus, which... Which is kind of yeah. his bread and well, butter. That's it's kind also, of what he always it's does. It's a series of choruses, you know, and it does have that moment that boils down to the, the quiet piano and then builds up to another final chorus, and then eventually they replace that main melody with just laws, you know, yeah. la, la, yeah, la, la, That's la, la, where I got... And that's uh, even that's, more childish. Yeah, that's where I like the song even less, is I just... The lot, like, look, you want to do, you know, vocalization of notes and laws and ooze fine i don't hate them flat but it just seemed unnecessary and additional here it didn't seem like it added anything to the song there was no weight to it there was no infectiousness to it there was no pulling chorus sing-along feel like it didn't even feel like you wanted to sing along to it it just felt kind of there it also doesn't provide enough information about brooklyn yeah like i think that's <laughs> no that that is the big problem the song here. wasn't informed enough it's, for you it's very insular in other words uh, yeah. it's just what's going through his mind and that's yeah. all well and good but i think he should have he should have made his case a little bit I guess, yeah. Again, I've, jury duty stuff going around my mind. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, before we go on to track three, my biggest problem here is that it just felt, at its core, way too simple. And not that there's anything wrong with a simple song, but I think there's nothing to shine beyond it. I thought the verses, at least, even though the structure was fairly simplistic, the delivery gave you something to latch on to, even if the lyrics were also pretty straightforward. And the you, chorus, the lyrics were straightforward, the delivery was straightforward, it was predictable, and it was repetitive. And if you're going to do something like that deconstruction in the bridge with that second to last chorus, do something with the piano. Yeah. That's, that's modulate what, or something. No, well, not even that. Like, just try something. Add some extra notes in there. Expand the melody. That's something I was really, really waiting for because I love piano. Everybody loves piano. It's hard not to. So when we get into the next track, So Close, with a piano intro, I was just immediately going, but he's not doing anything to it. Well, well, just first of all, just to put the period at the end of the sentence in the last track, if you know, if his only problem with Brooklyn was the fact that the commute is a little bit long, then I, I have no sympathy because if you brought it up earlier. If you really want to, you know, test your commuting skills, then come to Staten Island. It'll test your metal. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but Highest yes. in the country, I think. Longest, longest commute. As someone who frequently commuted from Staten Island, the ass end of Staten Island into Manhattan for a job when I was living there, yes. It's true, and it <laughs> yes. sucks. Um, all right, so as John said, on to so, so Close, which is track three. So this song kind of starts with the cliche already that he's well known for is the slow rise song, the song that amps up slowly to become anthemic. It's something he's done quite a bit that I actually happen to have liked quite a bit in Jack's Mannequin, which is where this kind of strongly leans to, although there is quite a bit of blending between his projects. That said, it's reminding me of what I finally remember of Jack's Mannequin, at least. And since I wasn't really into any of the previous work, I thought it was straight out of the playbook of Plain White Tees. Like, it, it had that uh, almost summer hit kind of a feel of start soft, start slow, put a lot of space in the vocals, and... Uh, add in that space oscillation piece on top of the piano work. Just something to go high and low and high and low and kind of keep everything paced. Yeah. When you start going into the drum work, make it just kick. Keep it simple. Keep it just ready and rhythm-oriented. But because so little is actually going on in the rhythm orientation of everything going on right here, I'm finding myself wandering very quickly. First 30, 40 seconds... 
I was waiting for a course, something to actually start pushing me forward because I'm I'm needing energy almost right away with this track. Yeah, I I have to agree. That whole first 38 seconds specifically was just it during verse, during pre-chorus, the amplifier, you know, galloping drums, everything has to build and build and build and build. You know exactly what it's going to break to to the point that actually when it finally broke and unleashed itself when the beat drops, I was actually more satisfied with that than I was this this fairly predictable intro. Now by the time we got, you know, beyond 30 seconds, we jump into the chorus, then I was like, all right, this is, it, it, it's a weak, funky club thing. It's, it's almost disco, but even, I, I know it's been done to death, but it was enough to at least, I knew what the track was. I knew what it was supposed to accomplish. I didn't know what the beginning was supposed to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree there. Focusing out on the chorus, though, for me, this is a moment when listening to this album where I recognize a song that I know I heard at the live show. The dancing nature of this chorus is definitely something I remember dancing to when we were on the lawn at this show in Philly. Um, that said, the impact is a little lost on me here. Even though the shift is felt here, when I saw it live, I felt like dancing, I was with friends, we were having a good time, and it just had more impact with the live band, whereas here, on the record, it feels a little almost lackluster to what I was fondly remembering from my experience. Because it's doing two specific things. One is the heavy repetition of So Close, the other is the faux yelling. Repetition is great if you really can change up inflection, and it's really great if you can really put force behind very, very short, clipped, meaning, meaningful words. So close, it doesn't have a whole lot of setup to give it that sort of impact. The yelling, I'm calling it faux yelling because it's not really very loud. It's very even keeled compared to the rest of the music. It's forceful, yeah. It, but it sounds like he's reaching for something. Yeah. Since it's not going beyond the music itself, it sounds like he's growing further distant, which I guess is works well for the irony's sake of the words so close, but well, it's not really being impactful. The only thing I'll disagree with you on is that, you know, the words so close themselves are not really that clipped. They're drawn out, as I recall. They're more like, so close. Like, it's, it's, it's a kind of ethereal thing that I know he's going for um, like to serve as the focal point over this this funky beat backdrop. I I okay, I let me clarify. I didn't mean that the words themselves were clipped or anything of that sort. Yeah. I feel like the setup for these words didn't have enough meaning to make these words particularly impactful. That's what I'm going for. Yeah, I mean, the well, chorus... once I hear the beat, then it's hard for me to take any words impactful at that point because I, I like once you can can sign yourself to the fact that it is a dance track, then I like I I don't care about any of the lyrics in the Bee Gees. I really don't. I just don't because I know what That's they fair. I know what they serve, <laughs> and that fair. doesn't diminish them at all. I love the oh, Bee Gees. The Bee Gees are fantastic. Yeah. So it's it's more just come about, at me, internets. Yeah, come at them. It's, 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 I'm just saying, BGs are would, great. I don't care what anybody says. It would not make any sense to you know. We've obviously we've looked at dance music before, and we approach it very differently. Yeah, but this sure. is not a dance album per se. This is just a dance isolated chorus, and then we immediately go back to the the, the build up thing, which is very tiring. It is. Know? I would agree. And then even when it leads into the bridge, he does the same thing he does in every bridge. It gets a little ethereal. He kind of thins it out. Then there's this return to the chorus 
chorus where the chorus is also thinned out and then big final chorus again. But and like it, a particularly thinned out and this is yeah. what I want to start harping on here. It's particularly down to just vocals and usually just a single instrument line, maybe beat work along with like the standard piano, whatever he was Prepared doing. down compared to what the rest of the song was doing. This is what I'm going to refer to second chorus syndrome. And I'm specifically calling it out now because, a little preview, every track has second chorus syndrome. We had it in the first track too, but we're now painfully aware of it In the first track, I actually enjoyed it. It was was a nice little... Not really a breather, but a nice little like yeah. form change up. And it was. It like felt that. like an earned moment that was because we were kind of unhappy with the chorus. The bridge at least gave us something a little different. Here, the second chorus syndrome is very blatant. <laughs> it's not. The, it's the, very in your face. It's kind of perpetuating the what the rest chorus, of the song is done. Terminal. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can't escape it. But but I, yeah, uh, no. I think overall, for me, my biggest gripe with this track is that it, it's it. I don't even know how to describe it. It's something about the predictability, which was not something that I was a stranger to with some of his work, but also just the way it blends and the way it moves. You're right. It does feel like this kind of aimless dance song that doesn't really have a place. It's not that he hasn't done dance music before, because he has. He has done dancing songs. But once again, be consistent. It's not. Yeah. It doesn't make for a good dance track if it's only the chorus. Right. It like, should I, be I genuinely feel danceable that, through. Exactly. And yeah. and he throws in, once again, that piano little vocal interlude, yeah. which is like, really? Like The people are going to just leave the dance floor for 14 seconds and then just just go right back up out there? No. that's It breaks up the flow. So if that's the purpose, then it, it doesn't really make any sense to me. It does seem a little out of place. Again, I remember looking back fondly on it live, but again, context was very different, and it wasn't a focused listen. It was more of a enjoying everything around me. Um, as we make our way to track four, Don't Speak For Me, true in parentheses, um, it has the sim- a similar start. We've got a low-tone synth tone here, but the start is more or less the same, the slow-rise track. It's doing the same party trick that we just did. But from the context here, I thought we were going to go into something that was heavy R&B. It does feel that way, yeah. And, I mean, he's not uh, opposed to doing that kind of thing before, and so when it doesn't really go full force into that, I'm actually a little disappointed because it did set that I up mean, pretty it, well. It could go a lot of places based on those four, you know, soft <laughs> synthy chords with That's the string. Wheeling synth melody. It, it's, uh, but it doesn't go a lot of places, does it? it? No, it becomes the the sort of standardized side one album piece of. It's going to be the introspective song. Yeah, it's a tenderer yeah. track, and you definitely get that in what I'm inclined to call the pre-chorus. You know, you could interpret this whole entire thing as the chorus. Many sources would say it's all a chorus, but I feel the beginning of it as kind of a pre-chorus, beginning with Don't Speak For Me, I'll Get With It, Give It Just A Little Longer, Don't Speak For Me, Yeah, I'll Be There Soon, Honestly, Every Day I Feel Just A Little Bit Stronger Than When I Was When I Was With You. And then, yeah, it's true. And that, that, that climax right there with, yeah, it's true, is just, that is the beat drop, that is the chorus to me. I even say that's the hook of the chorus, like yeah. the shining feature of it, but I see that as the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, there's just, there's no drop yet amidst everything. It's just rising action, rising action, boom, climax. Actually, I really, while, while the, the verses weren't doing it for me, the pre-chorus was. I was enjoying the flavor, the tension that was being built. It was a subtle thing. It was, it was more along the lines of your standard piano rock style build, where it just feels like he's hammering the keys a little bit heavier as we go along. And that ear-popping sensation that's going on is good. But what it does burst into with, yeah, it's true, 
left a little bit of a sour note for me, a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. It felt like it was this nice ripe piece of fruit that when I bit into it was a little bit a little bit far gone. It did not leave me in the area that I I, I really wanted, I guess. Whereas for me, I wouldn't be that harsh. Um, I can understand where you're coming from, but for me, it's mostly that what's wearing on me the most here by now is the machine drum, uh, not the band either. This is the <laughs> mechanical synthy drum that's been consistent throughout the album so far. I'm just a little tired of it, considering live he had a full band, and I would love that actual physical sounding percussion but on top of that i did think that the blend between the verse and the chorus here was closer to a through line than we had had yet because we get more of that on the next track but for sure here it's more consistent than the previous tracks right because the pre-chorus serves as more of a bridge here and yeah. because it's it's more prolonged it's not just this tiny brief stepping stone it's a it's a it's a long drawn out thing but then to return to your previous point i also agree because you have that dominated mostly by the piano in the background during mm-hmm. the pre-chorus but then you have to uh, that heartbeat that heartbeat yeah. boom 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 and it's i it's almost relentless at this point i i i I guess it's supposed to ramp it up for you and making you f- making your heart beat beat in synchronicity. I don't know. I don't know. But to finish my point, also though, the reason I don't mind the part that John does, the yeah, it's true, is because it's the first time on the album he's really showcasing his voice. Though it is, does feel like it's a little synthesized. He's at least belting things, and he's got a really beautiful singing voice. But you don't you hadn't really heard a lot of it at this point. It's been kind of very played down up until this point. Actually, I feel like it's more of a chameleon. It, it's it's uh, it shows up a lot more later on where I feel like he feels like A. He sounds like B. He He's personifying C. I mean, we already threw out names like Sting. Right. So we're getting an idea of maybe his voice isn't as, like, specific. Him. It's malleable, I and think. I think that chameleon effect is actually to his credit. He's allowed to change his vocal style to match something, to actually feel like he's more towards well, a specific line. I don't remember. I didn't compare him to Sting. I only compared the concept of. I did compare him to Beck. Commute introspection, and I do hear the Beck. I hear the. I hear Beck. In fact, he kind of looks like Beck a little bit. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. It's something I noticed. But uh, I, I'm gonna make one more point about this track because we we're not we're not really talking about lyrical quality. We're we're sort of questioning exactly what he's going for. But this is a track where I am very very strongly against because I I'm finding it just laden with with very tired metaphors things that. Don't do anything for me in any way, shape, or form. Verse 2, people try to box me in, telling me it's sink or swim. Maybe I should sink until I stand, out here where the water's deep. I think I found a voice in me, and someday we will walk upon dry land. I am (sighs) extremely tired of uh, cliches. Everybody's tired of cliches. That's why they're cliche. Box me in. Box me in is always one that that artists go back to. Sink or swim is... Like it is Aristotle level of age. Like it is an old idea. The problem with this is not that he's using these cliches. It's that there's no context to understand what the sink or swim is, what the boxing is. Who are they? What are they doing? There's nobody, nobody here but him. Verse one, I think I dug a hole so deep and lately it's been hard to sleep. How does A equate B? How does A become B? These things are non sequiturs. They're just 
well, words. I, I I agree with that, but also one more thing. You said it's like Aristotle, like it's, it's that, that old. long old. No, the sink or swim thing. I actually see it in more of just the concept of in your life. You know, it's the probably the earliest metaphor that comes really really obviously because as soon as you learn to swim at a really early age, if you learn at a really early age, then it's like that that moment where you can see the child developing confidence. So immediately it's like sink or swim. I get it. Boom, the concept. And I don't know. I don't really I don't really need that in a song like this. It it doesn't do anything for me. I would almost rather he just say it verbatim. I'm more partial to should I get off the pot personally, but that's, that's, that's a nice one. That's a it's one. called fish or cut bait. That's that's where that's that, a good one too. Actually, I like that. Um, I, that's older. But taking it back to the doesn't rhyme with the track, me in, though. No. I will say though that a defense of that, not a defense I believe in, but a possible defense for that is it's overly generic in order to bring more people in. That said, it's a it's a very that's an argument against it. Overly generic. Can, I don't know how that can no, be used I mean, as a positive. Well, again, if you want to make something accessible to the masses, sometimes that's the goal. I'm not saying that's the goal here. I'm just saying is that overly generic a double positive. <laughs> no, Which double negative up. that equals a positive. No, no, a double generic. positive <laughs> that equals a negative. Yeah, that's that's a new um, one for me. But uh, that said, going back to the chorus i do enjoy the chorus i enjoy the delivery i enjoy the lyrics as as simple as it is it's just there's not much else to cling to here and i think that's what makes me struggle while i did say early on in the last track and i even get a sense of it here it does remind me of my favorite parts of jack's mannequin that said jack's mannequin at least had more content and more to chew on whereas here i find myself just a little bit hungry still well, if you want something different, we are going to get Mumford and Sons in the next track, Trek 5 Fire Escape, where... Although, uh, just to be clear, Andrew McMahon's been making music longer than Mumford and Sons, I believe, so... Well, I'm using them as an example, because what, know, we're being port- what we're getting on our plates here is uh, another piano setup, uh, pivoting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, a steady kick drum, and then an acoustic guitar, or I thought it sounded like a banjo, but it's that very twangy kind of a brush, and... That is a, a little bit of a different kind of a stretch that we're going on, but the big thing, the big thing that is screaming folk rock to me is just his vocal style, specifically in those choruses. It's the inflection, the way he almost... Kind of airy belting. Yeah, mumble, mumble, rise, mumble, mumble, rise. I That's folk to me. To it's, me, it's, it's hard to hear pop. anything. It's, it's folk pop, yeah. The, yeah. the form of folk that has been... Thoroughly, you know, manufactured. Sure. <laughs> digested and, and spat out by a computer. But that said, with all of those differences, the song still starts slow and builds to a big chorus, which is what the last two songs have done as well. Which is why the word pop is kind of appropriate here, because it seems like he's going to be using this pop structure almost to a T with most of his pieces. I will say that one of the differences here is that we do get two verses before the pre-chorus and chorus. Well, and it's... And they're, they're, it's a little more rapid fire here. The the actually yeah that is a good point the the two verses or really the the first verses pause yeah there is a little bit of a step up into the second half of that first verse and the second half of the second verse where the intensity does creep up on you a little bit where it's not just a steady steady build there's a, a, a gasp of breath and then boom we're going into something a little bit stronger a little bit more in your face. But then we get the pre-chorus, we go into the chorus work. I mean, he's not really doing anything different as far as the layering goes. It's more like the palette has just changed ever so slightly. But I will say that because the palette has changed, there is a sense 
of consistency here that we hadn't quite heard. We had talked quite at length with multiple tracks previously that there seemed to be this break between the verse and chorus. Here, I don't really see that. I really do see a kind of smooth blend of an overall pop sound from verse to chorus. And it makes the song stronger as a, as a whole, I feel, anyway. There was an interesting melody in the chorus, too. You know, I like the way he kind of... Actually, he, the way he kind of winds his way. For once, mm -hmm. I'm a fan of whining here. The way he winds his way from syllable to syllable. I noticed that he does that throughout him saying, you're number one, you're the reason I'm still up at dawn. Like, you hear, actually really hear that blink thing again. Yeah. Now that you mention that, it's 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 pretty strong. Um, and, and I actually mentioned that on, on episode 203 when we did California by Blink-182. I still kind of, the, the whine itself has actually kind of grown on me in a little right. ways. I didn't really like it when I was younger, but I, I like it the way certain artists do it. Uh, the thing I did not like about this track, however, is... Oh, those whoa oh ohs And I know I go on about this a lot, but this, I think someone actually coined a, f a phrase for this. It, it wasn't the Music A to Z podcast, but I believe it was referenced on the Music A to Z podcast that someone had coined a term for this called the millennial wail. Oh, yeah. This kind of bellowing of whoa oh 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 It's yeah. like, oh, this up and down, saying nothing at all, just melody filler. And it, it is frequently there in folk pop. I mean, I would argue, though, at least here that melody filler is fitting the melody when we got it earlier on the album it was just kind of the lalas and the in track uh, two felt kind of broken and almost unattached where this fit the flow of the track i can't least. agree with that a hundred percent i i i dislike it in all instances <laughs> no but i'm not saying but, you have it, to but like here it. in the beginning of this I, I, it's not in the chorus remember i like the choruses here it was there in the verses more yeah. so in the backdrop and that's that's where i still found it kind of distasteful and my final problem with this is that we get the Different second problems. I have a it's a problem I've already talked about, but I want to get into the specifics of it. The second to last course rebuild. Once again, it feels formulaic of destruction, rebuild, you're gonna go into a big rising course that really is hitting no new peaks, but once again, I actually like the destroyed part. The quieter part. The kind of melodic part that if it had been the focal piece would have been a really cool melody expansion. Could have done a lot of really interesting things with just piano work. I keep getting disappointed by these. Not to undermine John's point, but my brain went to when we were all talking about problems that I wanted to say, I've got 99 problems, but pitch ain't one. Uh, uh, it's all right. Uh, and if anyway. you thought that pun was really terrible, remember, please send all of your hate mail to steven.net. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not good. taking that. <laughs> he won't take the downfall for my bad pun, which is fair. That's honorable. I appreciate that. Yeah, but he's he reads all the mail all the time. So That's it true. He does check that stuff. I'll, I'll probably respond on his behalf. <laughs> That's true. You will. I, I'll, I'll let Steve do the work. I'm the PR guy here. You are the PR guy here. Anyway, but um, but yeah, no, I mean, I can... I think that as a whole, this song was better than the sum of its parts just because there was consistency here and a change in tone, you know, and even in style. But that said, it still wasn't an exceptional track by any means. I think I found myself just enjoying it more because of those things. All right, so we go on to track six, Dead Man's Dollar. I do actually like that title. I do want to say up until this point, like, I like the titles on this album. I mean, you know, stuff like So Close, yeah, there's a million songs called So Close, but like Brooklyn, You're Killing Me, and Don't Speak For Me, parentheses, Truth, Fire Escape, like these songs do kind of, 
put me in a place. And Dead Man's Dollar does the same thing. Unfortunately, I wish the songs had more impact I than don't know. the titles. Putting putting you in a place is becoming your new honest and fair earnest enough. and authentic. Yeah, that's fair. What, what is a place and what place is that? And can you describe it accurately? Sure. Well, so what I mean by putting it in me in a place is burden it's of proof. giving me <laughs> of uh, a, you want me to prove it, I'll prove it. It's getting me in a mindset based on the title and assumptions I'm making. What I mean by being put in a place is it's making my brain wander into a place that may be led to by the title. However, I expect the music to back it up, which it is not doing. Very much like what the album cover did to us in many right. ways. Right, exactly. That's a great analogy. All right, so what about this track? I, I, I'm going to start reading this a little bit because I think we need to get closer to actually what he means by these tracks. Don't wait until the morning. Don't wait until the light hits the cracks in the floor. Been living in the flight path. Not perfect, but it's all that we can afford. I spent the whole day working, been trying to pin these dreams to the wings of a check. Don't wait until the morning. So tired, but I don't want to go to sleep yet. I've been killing myself to make the dead man's dollar. Been killing myself to make the dead man's dollar. Been killing myself, killing myself, because I want to make a life, make a life for you. And there's your chorus. Um, lots, so, of, lots of woes there. <laughs> so yeah, so the, I mean the verse, what I'm getting from the gist of this is the, pa- the pangs of trying to make a dollar, trying to bust your ass, do the work, to make the money to provide a life. Simple concept. And, I mean, you know, something that a lot of people who are working their asses off to support a family can relate to. Um, you know, of course, coming from a working musician, it's always interesting to hear that. Because, honestly, when musicians sing about money or hard work, it's not usually portrayed in this kind of blue-collar way, which is interesting to me, to a point. where you it have to, to imagine to blue-collar. And I imagine right. this is the way it is for a lot of musicians who started writing which is young. Which point I was getting to, yes. Oh, really? Yes, that is the exact same go- point. I was good. Well, I was going to lead to the fact that more fairly independent or lower key artists probably feel that way. They probably do have to work a lot harder and do feel more blue collar. But may, even beyond that, you know, someone who gets success when they're younger, you know, the the limelight very often can be brief. Yeah. Not that it necessarily has been brief for him, but you know, the the initial uh, surge of of uh, attention he was getting maybe for something corporate. But you know, he continues being a musician after that. That's the career path you chose. Even if you chose it as young as eighteen, then it's like, well, if 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 that hit has has fallen off fallen on deaf ears or it's no longer getting radio play then well next song next yeah. song next song it's very much like just going to work and keeping on keeping on keeping on I I, uh, I I have I have sympathy for that concept which makes me kind of bemoan the fact that you know we're, we're doing what we do here yeah it very often does uh, well not very often we we often it's it's complete celebration but sometimes every once in a while you know we'll tear down a peg a little bit right and but- I don't it, it's the theme itself can still be the very self-aware concept of what your music means to you, even if it is just the day-in, day-out dollar. Sure, and I think, you know, to just briefly touch on what you were saying, we do, when we do tear down on something, we're not tearing down for the sake of tearing down. We're trying to provide critique, you know, opinions, thoughts, you know, ruminations, all exactly. that stuff. It's not just simply going, poo-poo, this sucks, which we try and avoid at all costs. Yeah. Um, that said, I'm going to get into a little more detail on how I feel about this track and more specifics. Of course, I'm not going to talk to the build anymore because screw it. It's the same drum machine. It's the same build that we've had on all the other tracks. Uh, However... Wait. No, I want to... Let me let me talk a little bit about this because I want to talk about one, one very specific thing because, yeah, piano simplicity, 
with a variety of pressures applied. The kind of noise that gets thrown in there, the beat work, the complication to the beat work as much as it does complicate. But it's that chorus, that chorus that has a capital F fun chorus <laughs> yeah. that I have to harp on. Want to make a laugh? Make a laugh for you. <laughs> it's, I, I it actually still like, hear it in my head. But then again, funs choruses often did stick. Then that I say is a good and bad thing, mostly because it's it's good. Because it, yeah, okay, it's sticking in your head. That's what a chorus is meant to do. It's meant for you to remember it over and over and over again. Yep. But it's fun. This is not a lauded kind of an idea. This is not a. A, a particularly innovative anything. It, it. I feel like I'm listening to fun, not him. We're using fun as the scapegoat for just about everything at this point. Well, it's. It, it, there's a very specific reason for that, and that's because they are pervasive in their choruses, and we always hear their choruses when we hear a chorus like this. It's hard to distance ourselves from that sort of thing, or at least for me. Well, and also, to be fair, bands did it before fun, bands will do it after fun. Sure. It's just fun is the... Po- popular punch bag at this point, like your Nickelback or your Creed or whatever else. There are plenty of bands who've been punching bags. Fun right. happens to be at it's this point. It's not even they're punching bag though. They are just extremely good at this chorus, and right. it's hard to say anybody did it ever quote better than them. I would use the word "good" very loosely to describe that those choruses. But <laughs> yeah, anyway, but you remember them. That's true. <laughs> but going back to this song, you know, I would say that it's kind of a letdown from the previous track because I thought at least we were heading towards some semblance of consistency and an interior building. Whereas here, we're having the same kind of uh, ebbs and flows like we've had in previous tracks. There is not a stark change between the, the version chorus here. We are starting to see some melding of that as we go through the album. But that said. I'm still not seeing anything stand out. Nothing's jumping out at me here. And this is coming from a fan of Andrew McMahon. I like his vocals. I like his instrumentation. I like the kinds of songs he makes. But here it just seems like too much ubiquity, even for me. I feel like now I know why. I know the hits of of uh, Jackson Mannequin and I know the hits of something corporate. It's because on an album scale, at least at this point, it's starting to dilute and blend together. Well, you know, it's reminding me a little bit of the problem that we had with Rob Thomas's lyrics mm-hmm. back in episode 149 in The Great Unknown, that, that there was the problem of translation there, the problem of translating his particular personal woes to the stage, where it kind of then is blended down, perhaps purposely, into yeah. becoming something ubiquitous that we can all sort of relate to. Right. And so in a track like this, you have the general message of kind of struggling in, struggling day in, day out, and also uh, verse 2, I know this isn't easy, you got that baby sleeping all by yourself, it feels like I'm always leaving, and I swear to God one day I'll be there to help, so you have general feelings of guilt, but like, that's a brief little, you know, window into his life. Right. But, but you don't get much expansion on it. Yeah. So I, that's the kind of problem I have in the end. It's moments like that. Even the first time around when I listened, I was like, oh, that's, that's sad. That's sweet. But then you, you forget it because you don't have the expansion of that story. Right. And, like, we've gotten far beyond that expansion in albums like Dan Bowles when he talks about having a kid and how it all the ways it's making him think. And here it just seems what took an entire song here, it's a line and we move on. And, and- that's just it's very stark differences. And there's a little bit of a discredit in the song itself in the bridge. Specifically, it's these are the lines. You and me and the dark make light. First, I find that to be a curious turn of phrase. I can see some metaphorical 
credibility. Like, I kind of like that. I like the wordplay there. But it is, let's work all day and stay up all night. The weird part is he's talking about having to work so deep into the nights. And here he's talking about playing all night with the person that is he's separated from working all like that. I, that well, doesn't jive with me. Well, see, it does jive with me because it sounds like this is the uh, whimsical what if thought. It's not the matter of fact, and so this is the opposite to what the actual matter of fact was. So that makes perfect sense. Okay, to me. okay, I'll give it that. One thing I do want to point out, and I guess I'm saying it's it's not. A problem, I want. I have to point it out because it isn't a problem, is that we don't get second-to-last syndrome on this piece. That's true. It he is. doesn't do a deconstruction. Yeah. Which was jarring, I guess, that I didn't go, that he didn't do, oh, that thing that I keep harping on. So I guess, yay? It's weird that I actually felt happy he didn't do that. And that's where I'm getting conflict. I mean, let's all consider... Me for a second. And the fact that I often come into the defense of a lot of pop cliches because I go, well, it was fun, but I'm not even getting any of that here. Yes, I mocked myself. But it, it, there's, a, there's a good point. Do that more. To do that. <laughs> do it plenty. Trust me and you know that. Um, but no, seriously, it, it's one of those things that frustrates me because I'm, I'm someone who does indulge to, a, to quite an excess in pop music and enjoy it. Even if some of the songs are simple or ubiquitous, whatever. I find some kind of pleasure in it. But the, the reality is here, if you're repeating the same structure over and over again to a point where even it's tiring me out that says something, especially for this podcast. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree to all that. But also uh, the point you made about um, you know your inclination to defend pop tracks. I recall, well, to very recall, I did very recently. You know, anybody... Need go to episode 231, Dan Bull, and Star F left a massive response to that episode, and we're very as thankful he tends to him. to do with many and so, Including his own I, correction. I yes. really like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I was like, no, wait, I forgot something. Here you go. That's right, and it's also of, of decent length. So I said, as a, as a fellow wall of texture, because I am prone to do the same, and it's exactly how I responded to him. And one point was actually on that little debate that we had, you know, over a track like, like Fuck Everything, the last yeah. track on that album, which by all rights, in many ways, that is, it, it is a shallow track. It's yeah. a shallow on its own we had that discussion but like it, it warrants some defense and that's one of the reasons why we're here we try to look for the reasons to defend something so it's not just you you know yeah. it's not just you looking for the reasons to defend pop tracks we're all kind of looking for them that particular track as I said though in my defense was that it has the benefit of following an entire album which supports it in a yeah. myriad of fashions so it kind of validates putting that at the very end for the reasons that I described whether you agree with that or not is entirely up to you but at least there is a case to make. And I'm running out of cases to make here as of track six. The repetition here doesn't seem to have that background. Or if it is, then it's, it's just really hard to see. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's tough when you're dealing with an artist who we know his story to a point. We talked about it, and he's had struggle, and he's not without it. It's not. There's nothing superficial about it in his life. It's just I'm trying to find the meaning in the songs, and I'm at a loss. I mean, when we go to track seven... It's not that it has no background, I'm going to clarify. It's that it has... It has it's not bolstered by the earlier material. Right, yeah. And going on to track seven, Shot Out of a Cannon, <coughs> we get more cliches. The, the, the start well, of the track... Mm, the start of the track is punctuated piano notes, and we've gotten that on countless albums. So you go wait, back wait, to wait, Dan wait, Bull wait. really quickly, you know, at least Dan Bull, he admitted that it was a cliche in the very track, you know, where he's like piano and vocals and strings. See, even that had strings. Yeah. Okay, there. I have a couple of defenses for this piece. 
one, no preamble. We get right into the that, crux of that, it. That, that is, is actually a little bit refreshing. We don't have to wait 15, 20 seconds before he starts. It's not like it's a slow build or anything. It's well, punctuated it, preamble. You know, there's no, there's no build per se, but yeah. it still starts out pretty thin. You know, it's just the straight percussive chords. Yeah. You know, the bare bones piano chords. But that's that's a little problematic because this is a. It's more like a practice session in many ways to me. I, that has never really there. Are, context would be really, really important there, and I, I, I'm, I'm struggling at this point. Again, a little bit of bias here, being a piano player. I like the piano to be a little more filled out as an instrument. It's just I feel, I feel to be kind of cheapened when it's just the pure piano chords. That's that's the building blocks of a song. Well, yeah, but I mean to defend this song a little bit because I, I am starting out way more down on it than I should be. Going back to his vocals and the lyrics means. Steve did discuss that we did like his pattern of, of singing here. He has a playful nature of delivering yes. these lyrics that's really, really engaging in both the verse and especially in the chorus. Yeah, the chorus is a whole other animal. I mean, you might argue that that's the reason for having the, the beginning being what it is. It's yeah. so thin, so that way when, the, when it, the drop comes, when the funky chorus steps in and his vocals really change up, it's just that much more impactful. I, I struggle to see the connection, really. I mean, that could have been done with any piece of texture in the world. Why, why do you still have to cheapen the piano? It's not fair to the piano. But in defense of the chorus, I feel like this is one of the best meshes on the album as a whole. It does feel like it, the chorus actually emerged from the verses. Instead of superseding the verses themselves and it's in, in their intensity, this, it's kind of just a fluffy build, but it is fluff on top of something recognizable. It feels like it's fulfilling something. It's fulfilling what the music was trying to do from the onset. Well, this so is, that, I'll give it some credit for. It. This is the first one that is memorable and, and not to a fault. You know, some of the others were memorable. Eh, not all of them, but some of them were memorable in the way that it's just like it's that chorus that floats around your head. You don't know why. There's no particular reason for it. And you almost begrudgingly have to give it that little A for effort or that little point just for it being there at all. But in this case, I am actively bobbing along. So, yeah, yeah it is, a, it is a, a significant increase. After he says, shot out of a cannon, you know, that little bounce in, I'm defying gravity. And, you know, that yeah. little bounce. And everything has that little, that little just uh, short, long, short, long, short, long. A little gallop of its own, even just within the beat. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's also complemented by a higher kind of tonal synth sound that we can't really I couldn't really identify the what rah, instrument rah. it was but, but it, it was an interesting <laughs> texture that we didn't really hear and so it added another layer to this track that at least made it interesting so instrumentally as well but the tempo for me was actually kind of a stickler. Like, the tempo feels a little bit laid back for the complexity of the beat. The beat's just a little bit too thin for the space that's in between each of them. I feel like there should be, like, a lot more going on there, and the gaps to me are very noticeable. Well, that's the tough thing. I mean, you, you can't ask for the moon, which would yeah. be the moon here as as from where we stand. I mean, just looking at that little thing he does with his vocals, that I'm defying gravity, like, that is really cool, but it's that's working within the micro scale, you know? What you want is you want the whole entire track to do something akin to that. You yeah. want the beat to shift up a little bit, you want him to add an extra beat here and there, and believe me, all of these are good ideas. They could really expand on this, but that's just, that's not where it's headed. He's working within a framework and you have to be thankful for what you get within that framework. Yeah, I think my biggest struggle here, before we move on to track eight, is that I'm struggling to explain or find redeeming qualities. And it's not because this is the worst music we've ever heard. No, not we've heard a lot worse. Right. Yeah. And so that's, I think, where I struggle the most. This is actually reminding me quite a bit, although I 
don't know that I was in, as engaged with this as I was with that album. We only mentioned very recently because it's still one of my greatest failing moments to describe why I like something. But it was the Everlast album we did. I really love that record and still love that record. But I couldn't vocalize quite why, and I lost that battle. Here, again, I like his work, but I'm at a loss to describe any redeeming qualities here but this this album I don't have the same attachment to as that one I don't know that I necessarily enjoy this as much I think that this album is kind of lackluster and I wish I could find something to defend it I mean when we go to track 8 walking in my sleep there's very little we can say that's different about yeah. this track and it, this is the blending factor that this album kind of has he he delivers um, the choruses here with an elongated sleep that he's done with other tracks it, again his vocals are shining and I like his vocals a lot but on this album I'm struggling to find uh, something to identify with like my favorite song by them is by that Andrew McMahon's ever done is Dark Blue. It's got a peppy piano, uh, you know, melody. It's got, you know, a kind of seesaw kind of feel to it. It comes and goes. It's more or less a pretty distinct structure to what he's done here, too. But there was something I could grab onto in that track here and in a lot of tracks on this album, especially Walking in My Sleep, which I think is the biggest proponent of this problem, is I've got nothing to latch onto. I like his vocals. The instrumentation is okay at best, but there's nothing for me to really sink my teeth into, and it's really starting to fail me here. Well, the acapella intro was yes. enough to sink your teeth into <coughs> for 10 seconds. Yes, yeah. until we get uh, piano, oscillating synth, and kick beat. Um, that heavy energy in the chorus, well, actually what led up to that heavy energy, there was something that did stand out, and that was that kind of voxy string work that synth string work that comes in in the pre-chorus I did really enjoy that it was a a really good texture for what was going on but again we get big energy chorus I don't know where a lot of this energy is coming from because it doesn't seem to be present in anything but maybe the kick beat uh, struggle to do anything different here well there was a st- String in the background, a stringed yeah, instrument, a violin. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. Well, you, you did mention that. It's, it's yeah, it's it lost. <laughs> it gets lost in the mix, and wow. See, I'm even forgetting we brought that up. See, I've, we've run out. I, I I think we've run well, out at this point. I do have other. I have very specific issues. I'm just going to mention them in passing. Uh, the background clapping in the second to last chorus, yeah. uh, coupled with the piano once again. The sleep was actually not enjoyable for me. That showcasing of vocals, like it felt really generic for me so I was actually nonplussed again I mean the one defense I have for this song albeit a small point is that the song at least seemed to have some semblance of a narrative structure um, it felt like a journey song it felt like a on the road song and kind of had that dr- movement to it which at least I'm being put somewhere sort of but again that's very minor considering I'm not getting much else out of the song I'm gonna go half and half with you okay. actually 60 40 no all right, I'll take it. No, no, 10, oh, the other 10, 10 is it. the other one. I'm sorry. 10 goes to you. And the 10, well, first, should I do the 90 <coughs> or 10 first? You do the 10. No, do the 10. 90. Give them the good news. Do 90. the 10. Let's with a glow. All right, do the 10. Um, The narrative structure of this track literally is just that it brings back the concept of place. 
in a pretty strong way. The whole come home to California thing, the equating his walking in his sleep to him being there because he seems to miss it. Uh, hey, wild heart, I'd give up everything to see the world in blinding color, which I can only imagine is a nice reference to the wonderful showering of sunlight that L.A. gets at all times. But beyond that, beyond that, and here's the 90. The narrative structure is confined to those isolated lines. This track yeah. has some of the worst repetition. I could see you walking in my sleep. I'll never stop trying. You're my silver lying. Even when I'm walking in my sleep, in my sleep, in my sleep. When I'm in my sleep, in my sleep. Even when I'm walking in my sleep. Come on, wake me up, wake me up. Feels like I'm walking, walking in my sleep. It just goes on and on and on like this. I get the idea already. In which case, this could have been a 20-second track. <laughs> You know, Oy. when you read lyrics, you do them justice. You really do. Yeah, that was pretty. Depends on the song. No, but that actually, the, the that way you phrase those lyrics yeah, was yeah, actually yeah, particularly yeah, good. good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that because it gets the point across. It is just a lot of the same things over I and over again. I at least felt like there was movement in the instrumentation and the delivery of the track. I will agree that the narrative, I'm making finger quotes, is thin at best. All right, then uh, track nine, Island Radio. Um, I have a little anecdote for this track. I was, my, my, one of my earlier experiences of this album during our week listening was actually in the car. I don't always get the chance to do that, but I don't know. I, was, I had some free time, and I was like, I am going to take a dedicated drive to listen to this album, all right? And uh, it, was, it was enjoyable, but the drive was a little bit more enjoyable than the album itself. And I was, certain tracks were just kind of drifting by me until I got to track nine, Island Radio. And the thing that leapt out here in this track was actually the displacement of texture. It's one of the only tracks that actually completely overhauls everything that this album had previously used. All of a sudden here, if the phrase island radio isn't enough, you have this this gulping effect in the drums, which is very, very strange, paired by what you two uh, likened to sort of a steel drum in, in the higher bit. This sound yeah, to this, it that was the sound that was the way they were overlapping, I just was Kind of like, what what album have I been listening to for nine <laughs> tracks straight? I mean, it's not like it's so stark, but it is relatively stark. Stark enough that I, I wasn't really sure I, I was I, I wanted to see some 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 lift at the tail end. You know, I was I was starting to head my way, my way back home at this point because I, I knew that the, the album was wrapping up, and then I was just like, you know what? I'm going to just circle around you know the block for a few more times, just mull about this album, the end of it, and see what he does different. Actually, one thing that does show up here is a big change in his vocal style in the verses because you got the nursery rhyme effect in the chorus much earlier in the album. Here it's. It's it's really there in the verses. It's it's almost see saw knock on the door and that kind of a tempo yep. going back and forth and back and forth. It fits to the beat itself. It's one of the few times he really seems to make a concession for his vocals to try to adhere to the style of music that's going on behind him. I gotta give him credit for that because it does have an allure to it. But when we get to the chorus, everything goes big without really any preamble, and that was a bit of a surprise. I don't feel like we actually did any building to this chorus. Previously, we've said, okay, it, it jumps up, there's energy, and there's there's uh, issues for that. But here, I don't feel like there was any leadway. There was any sort of like pre-chorus kind of an idea showing up to let us know that it's going to get that big that quickly Yeah. with the slap snaps with the real oh god yeah no those especially at the end of the phrase work the, those 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 
slap snaps. That's the only way I can <laughs> phrase it. I don't know how else to describe it because it's somewhere in between those two ideas. The texture is really still tough to pin down in a lot of this. You know, you, you do what you can here. But I did like the melody, actually, just as you said. You know, there is kind of a nice nursery rhyme feel to it. And also in the way, specifically in the chorus, the way the last note is just sort of like raised up a bit. You know, just little little inflections like that are, are basically what I'm clinging on to at this point. I mean, yeah, we're looking for deep, we're looking deep, deep in the instrumentation or lyrical delivery for character of any kind to yeah. differentiate these songs. And I feel like track 8 and track 9 have done that a bit. It's just not enough. Actually, and it feels like it's lacking in other places when it pushes these forth. Actually, one thing you pointed out off air, the bridge. The bridge not only feels kind of tried and true for this album, it's almost a cookie cutter from the previous track. Well, yeah, because structurally these songs are similar. Length 8 and 9, they are similar pacing they are similar placement of verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus. well that can be said about other things but, but it, it's most noticeable here because they are even paced the same yeah like the it's almost uh, you could do one's lyrics over the others in this yeah. bridge work and well, because really they both not have miss this a beat. kind of travel movement feel but it's very vague it's not like i feel like i'm going somewhere except maybe to the island in this case, but but, but that's well, very on the nose anyway. Because it's, it's, I think the album is supposed to symbolize a gentle realization, or, or rather that everything that was busy has already come and passed. You know, I was on the roller coaster, found the ground just in time. I was underwater when the siren came and saved my life. Every day started out last night. Every night started over. I was on the roller coaster, found the ground just in time underneath the power lines. Um, also has a nice little nice little cadence to it. But, um, you know, it, if one thing can be said for this album, the, the narrative structure of the album, if not, you know, peering deeply within the song, you can basically get it from a couple of lines that this is all his kind of return to understand what he needs to do, you know, what his responsibilities are. We talked about the blue collar thing earlier on. And it's it's a maturity album, you know? Oh, yeah, there's we were talking about those, the great seven, what, the seven great, you know, literature ideas at some point. We said we were going to apply them to albums. Well, in this case, it's pretty easily, it's pretty easy to do. I think it's just his, it's his coming of age. Yeah, and I think considering all of the strife he's been through throughout his life, that's he's been very public yeah. about, even with his documentary, yeah. when he was suffering from leukemia, there is some growth to be here, especially when he thought his life would be cut short, you know, there's an expansion. I just, I guess... Yeah, not the same kind of coming of age. I yeah. don't want to mean that it's all, like, based on him. Of course, you know, the leukemia is something out of his control. It's not yeah, something, yeah. you know, that he had to over... But it's something that pe people... Of course, you have to overcome anything, you yeah. know, whether it was your fault or not. In which case, it's just... They're all different stages, I think, of coming of age, which is why I think that's such a universal storyline. There's yeah. all different types. It can and happen in adolescence. It can happen in adulthood. And I think I definitely do feel it in the lyrics and even somewhat in the structure of the album. But for the most part, you have to really look for it. You know, it's it's face value in the lyrics if you read them. But beyond that, a lot of it kind of blends together. I mean, even as we move on to track 10, Love and Great Buildings, which is another great title. I really like something about that title i just feel like we're we're losing ourselves at this point i mean tell me tell me right now john i'm looking at you why is this <laughs> track distinct what's distinct about it okay well first off it is the side two version of the introspective <laughs> song uh but that actually that lends to its credibility because while i don't really feel much of a tonal shift in this from the last few tracks I can identify it right away as something a little bit different, and that is primarily in the vocals. Uh, 
It feels plaintive. He feels like he's reaching something. This is actually probably the most emotional he's getting on the entire album. And that distinction changes in the chorus. And that is the biggest change in the chorus itself. Because here, I said previously there was great blends from verse to chorus. Here, the chorus barely really seems to change. All the elements remain the same. It feels like a natural evolution. But the vocal style changes just enough to go from that plaintive plea to something that feels hopeful. And this track, this track is probably the best on the album. I actually felt a little bit of something stirring in me. If we're if we're gonna go off of feels. Like I felt a little bit of he's actually reaching into a real place. A a, a truly real experience and expressing it to me it may be like in my top three but it's funny you know the the vessel that he chose to accomplish all of that because my initial impress impression of it was kind of a little bit flat you know it it almost sounded at first like a commercial jingle like something you know like for really basic thi- like a boring new trading technologies or something like that like not for like a hot product or anything it's just a bunch of people in suits you know looking happy you know trying to show you that they're they're full of progress that's that was the overall tone of this track and i think that's exactly why it worked in your in its favor the way you just described because it actually does somehow symbolize progress and i think i hear progress in that you know i can actually recall a few standoutish commercials from like the late 90s for like ibm software or something like that you know that were really that were really boring when you're like a kid in the 90s but at the same time like they had a kind of energy to them like this excitement surrounding you know the the tech boom at the time and i felt like i i felt that same sensation throughout this track and i realized that in the end what i thought was what I thought was was a negative turned out to be positive. And that's why, well, I'm, I'm going to sell this really hard, as much as my introverted comment earlier might actually decrease from it. But there is one thing. It, it does feel earnest, but it feels, it feels like he's, he's going the full antidepressive route. Like he's, he, he just popped a few pills and all of a sudden is feeling great. I don't know if it's 100% real. I feel like he's drawing from a real place, but because we're getting the same exact formula that we got on every other track on this album, I still got to take it with a grain of salt. It's still verse, it's still chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. I I want to change, especially because he finally is reaching me on his vocal pattern and his lyrical work, I wanted a change in the rest of the music, something, something to grip me. The one major change was that the drums are gone and now we're getting a synthesizer. And that synth beat is one of the biggest departures on the album itself, but that synth beat was something that actually grabbed my attention for even as low key as it ended up being. Um, just to chime in, even though I did seem harsh on the outset of this track, I do want to say that I do agree with a lot of what's being said. And more importantly, I think the lyrics are the strongest here that they have been on the record. I really enjoy them. And I would agree with John, sort of. I think it is representative of an antidepressant and the fact that it's soothing and easing. This thing about it not feeling real, I mean, and antidepressants do give you a real sense of ease. They do help. And so I don't want to play it up as like, it's a foe, it's a band-aid. Because I don't get that here. I do feel like 
there is an actual calming nature to this track that also eases me, and I think it is in the lyrics themselves. All right, well, this is um, this is a 2080, all right, as opposed <laughs> to the 9010 before, but that's in the opposite, it flipped around. In okay. other words, there's You're 80, 80, 80, agreeing with 80 me. positive. Okay. But in terms of the lyrical point that you yeah. made, because of the fact, uh, I'll say the negative first, the 20 here is that I do think this is a little bit of a heavy-handed metaphor at times, of course, equating, you know, uh, the the heart to a to a structure that is mm. that is in need of repair but and and because he uses that and kind of runs it runs it into the ground but that in itself is kind of the 80 I'm yeah. kind of impressed by the amounts of weight because that's not a common metaphor that particular one you know right people and don't go he for, also does they don't go for structures it. they go for they go for weather they go yeah. for a myriad of other things although actually it does make one <laughs> reference to weather but still like it the, I like I like the the construction metaphor as a whole, which is why I'm actually going to read this one in its entirety, because I really, really like these lyrics as well. My heart is an apartment building on the verge, a testament to days more optimistic. The market shifts can cause some storm systems to converge, till all your high-rise dreams seem unrealistic. I want to keep the lights on. I could raise the rents and resurface the pool. I could take the banks on, repay all my debts, get my ass back to school. And the chorus, love and great buildings will survive. Strong hearts and concrete stay alive. Through the great depressions, yeah, the best things are designed to stand the test of time. Brick and plaster, beams and broken windows. Shadows pass on sidewalks, cracking to the curb. I want the lights on, repair the foundation. Maybe hire a crew, plant a little garden. Start the renovation, get my ass back to you. And then another chorus. And finally, love and great buildings will survive. Strong hearts and concrete stay alive. Through the Great Depressions, yeah, the best things are designed to stand the test of time. Love and great buildings will endure. Blue skies and bloodlines are the cure. For the great deceptions in a world that's such a blur will stand the test of time. That, yeah. That's, that's probably some... <coughs> that's probably better than all the metaphorical work of the rest of the album put together, at least in my opinion. That is really sweet. It feels like that he's actually drawing it from a raw place instead See, that, of instead of just complaining about the subway. It doesn't matter so much that it's heavy-handed when you can actually fluss it out and make it feel like a new thing each and every line. And honestly, it, it plays into just the New York idea mm-hmm. really well. Hey, absolutely. It and does, I, was, yeah. I think that was subconsciously on my mind even when I was mulling about this album the first few times. And for those of you out there who don't live in a big city with high-rises and stuff like that, there is something that even I, living in the city my entire life, of Staten Island, but still, I've spent a hell of a lot of time. City. I spent a hell of a lot of time in, in Westchester now. <laughs> yeah, and we've got high-rises there too, all right. Um, there is something about a, a you know, 40, 50-story building that is still awe-inspiring oh, every yeah. time Looking you walk up, up to it. up in Manhattan is still awe-inspiring as someone who's lived here my whole life. But just to see <clears throat> sort of the... Uh, the olds and the new and the borrowed and the blue mashing together mm. in a constructed environment, as dirty as it may be, when you start pulling away and seeing the constructed pieces all forming a whole with their spurts here and their sputterings there and the traffic patterns and everything like that, it, there is something of awe. And to equate that <clears throat> to love and to explain how the the actual coldness of concrete and the harshness of brick and mortar can still represent love is really endearing and also not just represent you know it, buildings take love in many oh, ways yeah. to oh, build yeah. i mean just the, the the concept of even oh, go through his litany here repair the foundation hire a crew plant a little garden there's so many different things that you have to get right in order to make a building function and still look 
like it was like it was when it was brand new you know it's just it's a complicated endeavor and requires so many different people to make it work and that complexity i think is well yeah you can liken it to the human heart absolutely sure and i think yeah that's probably the most that that's that is the teardrop moment on this album found i would it. agree found i would it. absolutely agree but and this is a question you don't have to answer but is it too little too late is it the one track i want to answer that, no it's no, not too little that too that's late. that's for the wrap-up Okay. Well, no, I'll answer answer that here briefly since I'm going last in the wrap up. Um, No, it's not because I don't feel I don't feel wrecked by the whole album up until this point, or I don't feel elated about the whole album up until this point. The album was pretty even for me, and so having a really great moment at the end is like, all right, it's all it's a light. I wasn't I didn't hate the album. If I hated the whole album and then got to this moment, then yes, it would be too little, too late. But the problem is, it's just enough of kind of feeling even throughout that I don't I don't get that. Anyway, on to the final track, track 11, a birthday song. And we get another cliche. Yep, it's a it's <laughs> guy in a piano in an auditorium, echoey, and, and you know. Well, it doesn't stay there. <laughs> you know, it doesn't it does, stay it, there. You're right, it doesn't. It's only there for about 30 <laughs> seconds or so, maybe a little less. Well, the beat, uh, okay, I will say the piano in the auditorium, considering the amount of lead-ins with piano we got on this album, it's... And not actually a cliche it's of part the, for the course. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a cliche for the album, not as the closer. Right. So sure. beat pick up, the chorus comes in, it's nice. There's a little bit of displacement of the piano when the beat steps in, which I did actually frown upon as I'm listening to mm-hmm. it. The chorus feels earned, though, in this case. I feel like it actually built up to it, though mm-hmm. there's not much building. I feel like it was an appropriate way to culminate it, much like in the previous track, I felt like it it was going full full force to the chorus without letting it go just full energy and becoming a disjointed piece. Well, I will agree. The track does take its time. And this is the longest track on the record, and I don't feel like we rush into the chorus, we rush through the verses, or we rush through the song. It doesn't feel overly elongated either. It does feel paced, and I think I really like that here. Um, I, I can't... I have different things to say that are positive about this track, but I am inclined to kind of disagree with your take on the music here. I don't think it's as, like, to to nitpick about how this particular track is paced with respect to other tracks earlier, I don't really see that disparity. I think there were other tracks that kind of took this pace, that kind of had this sort of, you know, slow build, sort of, and it still kind of feels in the vein of, you know, some of the other references we threw around. It still feels like a fun track again, you know, capital F, mainly because, you know, the drums. The drums here are just, there's actually quite a few layers. You have the steady rat-a-tat thing, and then you also have the tambourine on top of that, and then overall it's just this constant wall of chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga, and I, I understand why that has to be there at the tail end, but it's not like we haven't seen it before. I guess there's just a slight bit more weight thrown here because it is the final track, and he's singing slower, and I think yeah. maybe that's the only difference. So maybe that's um, why I feel it's more paced to me, because he is singing slower. Yeah. I think that's probably more where I'm drawing it from. Now, as far as the positive things, well, I, I believe that we could just jump right to the, the point of this overall track. I like the chorus only because I was wondering why he would say, it's not your birthday. It's not your birthday, and it's not the 4th of July. Tomorrow's a work day. You've got a life and a spaceship to fly. You've got a woman and a beautiful yellow-haired daughter. Come back to Earth, kid. You know that you can't chase the stars underwater. And I took that at first. Again, if you interpreted this as a coming-to-age tale of whatever kind, then 
this does seem like the kind of track that would be a response, a natural response to all of that, you know, New Year's resolution nonsense right. that all of us, you know, have saved up and pent up for make or break January 1st. Yeah. Tomorrow's not your birthday. Like, it's it's not your birthday. It's not a marker. It's a work day. It's a regular day, and any day you can make a change. Yeah, no, I and I do like that messaging. I also like the fact that, you know, it's this idea that... It, the day goes on, life goes on. It's very much, there's nothing wrong with getting back into the swing, with going with the flow, with taking the day to day. And I think this adds more to that blue collar feel that a lot of this album had mm-hmm. as well, as we discussed earlier. It also feels like he's talking to himself. And I like that aspect mm-hmm. of it, especially the final chorus. Man in the mirror kind of thing. Yeah. The final chorus, it's not your birthday, you should be done waking up on the floor. Come back to earth, kid. Don't you know you're not a kid anymore? Yeah. You married a good girl, she gave you this beautiful yellow-haired daughter. Come back to earth, kid. You know that you can't chase the stars underwater. It's... It is, it is a... It, this self-recrimination of the lack of maturity he's experienced in his yeah, life. Yeah, and that's a better way to put it. I'm, I'm oversimplifying this with coming of age. That implies right. that there was far less of him there. It almost feels like the kind of thing, like, he may have already come of age, but then he went into a slump, is coming back. Well, yeah, and I think also this this is a good final track for the general theme of the record that we've we've touched upon. It does feel like this moment where he's accepting everything and moving on and waking up and acknowledgement. And while there might not have been a strong narrative throughout the entire album, the final track does accomplish what I think the album is setting out to do. It's just the whole album doesn't necessarily do that. And I think that's where there's some breaks. Kind of like the Dan Bull album, you know? He he actually highlights the, his own point of pride, his points of pride. He could he could play all the notes, he can write all the words, he headlined in all the big cities. All of the things that, that you know, he has... He has a life behind him. He has a life to be proud of. He has a life to further. He has a daughter. He has things to live for. And there's so many things that have been mentioned, in, you know, sparsely throughout the album. Um, they all seem kind of compressed into this final track. It yeah. becomes perfectly clear. In, in fact, I feel like this album almost personifies someone reflecting over their life and, and trying to gain maturity. And I see a lot of that theme work in here, especially in, like, Island Radio, where it's the last broadcast from the party place. And love and great buildings and the kind of build up and build up and build up and repairing oneself and trying to make a life in the future with a lot of the reflection earlier in the album. It's almost like it's almost like you're in Starbucks having a cup of coffee and you're reflecting on your life and you're going to make it better. Except it's Starbucks. Kind of that generic flavor of the month kind of a thing. It's, it's not particularly inventive. It's not particularly different than anywhere else. It just got a couple of little tidbits in there, like a shot of mocha or something like that. Something hey, just... I, I wait all year for their winter specials. Oh, yes. that they yeah, do... Unless they bring back the creamsicle drink they had, I could care less. They have strawberries, in the cre- strawberries and cream every year, but no oranges no, no, and no, cream. No, no, no. It's the apple cider cinnamon. Meh. And that's Pumpkin my, spice. That's my point. That's good Everybody... Time does stuff like that. Every yeah. coffee coffee shop has those pumpkin spice or seasonal okay. drinks or everything That's like true. that. You could get any different flavor that you want at any different place. Yeah. This one is just the mass-produced version of such a thing. Yeah. This reflection on life, it just, just... Just going by form of tracks, I can't say it's anything but a mass-production kind of assembly line because every single musical track, all ten of them, are exactly... Verse chorus, verse chorus, interlude of some sort, usually a vocalist bridge, 
chorus with extra repetition outro. It is exactly that. There is a tried and true formula here that we harp on and discredit and really complain about. In some cases here, it worked. It helps. In most of the cases here, it doesn't work. Add in the lack of complexity in most of the rhythm section. I mean, it really doesn't go far in the melody section either, but the rhythm, rhythm section was something I was just really disen, disenfranchised by. Were you disenfranchised? I Did was you disenfranchised. Feel put yes. in a corner. Yes. Because. Ignored. Yeah, a little bit. Um, only because I wanted it to go places. And that second to last syndrome that was happening, that breakdown that rebuilt into the exact same chorus. Well, frankly, that's where my disenfranchisement actually occurred because those are the parts I actually kind of liked. Those are the parts where he pared it down and did something and it was kind of cool and it just became the same tried and true thing that I already heard twice before. So, I, I don't know what positive things I really gleaned from this album that felt like it was doing more or pushing music forward or felt truly personal aside from Love and Great Buildings. I don't know what the story is behind the inspiration of that track, but that feels like there was a specific event. It goes back to what I talked about earlier that you guys didn't let me say for the ending. <laughs> Which is that he's reactionary. He's talking about what's directly happening to him right now. As opposed to drawing upon all the years of experience somebody might have, he seems to be just responding to what what was happening when he was writing this. And that can lead to some very, very interesting ideas, very innovative ideas, because it's always off the cuff. It's always a, a eureka moment. But these these moments, if they are the eureka really don't feel like they're going to cause any waves. This album, I hate to say it, feels like it's going to be forgotten real soon because there's nothing here to really latch onto and say is is different, is unique. And because of that, because of the one word I don't think I actually used this entire podcast but want to use right now, because of how generic it is, it actually is below a three for me. 2.75 it's it's just it has nothing that would distinguish it not as an album but track by track take any one of these tracks compared to any other track on any other three star album and I don't see any differences to have that on the album scale is what drops it below a three well I don't particularly have any problems with him speaking to the immediacy of his plight. I think I actually tend to appreciate albums that that focus more on the recent past rather than the great all-encompassing album that is one's entire life. I think sometimes that can be just a little bit much. Maybe at, at best you can inf infer that that uh, a work like that will probably inspire them to, you know, rally the troops and really, you know, put their put their balls into it. I'm not saying he didn't try with this album. I think that it's just a very face value album. I think he wanted to write a positive album, which which yet is framed in 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 kind of a negative way. I mean, if you look at the zombies on Broadway, you know, all these people just shuffling around. I assume that that they're going to work. We didn't even mention the subway outro, did we? No. 
We didn't mention that little uh, that little closer. Because it was so forgettable. Because <coughs> it, it, it almost was a non sequitur considering it, there's a pause. It's almost like a hidden track. Okay, so there's not much to say about it. Simply to mention that it exists. Well, yes. there is. There's a long pause, and then there's that subway outro reflecting what we got in the intro. The self-titled, well, as close as we get to self-titled, zombies intro. Yeah. Um, and I guess those are the zombies. The other people just sort of going about their daily lives. So I do see a little bit of a split here between, or at least something I don't quite understand and I think would be difficult for a listener to connect. The two ideas of him and his personal manner of overcoming and also his experiences with shifting about from city to city, right? And finding more meaning in some areas or rather getting over his longing for you know i assume california getting over that if he's a a new new yorker now uh where does brooklyn come in here it's it's a little bit splotchy if you don't know the story and i'm sure it's all very clear cut as he probably lived a very clear cut life i mean i obviously he moved several times and he felt that was worth writing several songs about and it's interesting with the the individual metaphors that he comes up with, but they are really few and far between. Which brings me back to the other point you brought up, John, and I'm forced to agree with this album probably will be forgotten. Unfortunately, and it's not because he speaks about subjects that are immediate. Immediacy does not mean forgettable. I think you can accomplish something actually by doing something in a short span of time. You can actually, it can, it can be the exact opposite of the Rally the Troops all-encompassing album. It can be the kind of thing that, that you, had, you were in a certain, you were drawing adrenaline from a certain thing that happened in your life, and that was precisely what produced the great work of art. All of these things are possible. And once again, you're actually clarifying something. I didn't mean to imply A equals B. Okay. That the immediacy of the subject matter was what would make it forgettable. I was implying. Okay, well, I, I wasn't implying. I wasn't implying that you were implying okay, that it was getting, forgettable. We're getting so polite. You're both pretty. <laughs> I know. No, seriously, because I, I, I just, I addressed both separate things. And the fact of the matter is, I, I, I think that it's. It's easy to believe that one would lead to the other, and that's not what makes this forgettable at all. It, it's simply the vessel that he chose. And the more you know, I, I reanalyze uh, his work with something, something corporate. I'm not familiar with Jack's mannequin, but something corporate. I, I find that it is characteristic of the time, and maybe this is characteristic of both today and also a little bit of a bygone era. There's, there's strides being made of in pop right now that I don't see this album. Even even hinting at, even borrowing from, you know, you, where you can even say that it's at least sitting in a more modern idea of pop. It feels already a little bit dated to me. It feels very late 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, and it doesn't really make too much of a stride to borrow from any other genres. This, it's not the catch-all kind of pop that, that finds, you know, a bunch of different things you know, making its way into it. It's just, it's just pop at the end of the day. I don't even know what else to put this under when I'm writing the tags for this post. Um, and, and I think that is a little bit of a struggle. I, I hate, would, would hate to hurt it entirely because of genre, because it's, of course, not entirely because of genre, but that is, it shows an unworldliness and I think maybe that's my, my harshest critique of the day. This particular album, musically, shows unworldliness. His lyrics do actually show a bit of worldliness, and they do show that he has... They, they have a lot of common sense. They have a lot of um, enlightenment to them. And even though some will kind of gloss over you as, as 
John, I feel, sometimes derisively refers to as the, in the Robert Frost sense. I, that's kind of how a lot of these lyrics glide over, but I will admit that after, not, once I'm done, you know, with the, with the music, which can be done with fairly quickly, then all I'm left with is the lyrics. You just have to sit with them. And that, I think that's just a little bit too much in inviting for this album. And in, even so, it's not going to pay off on a track-by-track basis. So yes, this is below the three for me. It's the first one that's below a three in a long time because I really tried with this album and I will continue trying for the remainder of the year until the year in review. But I'm actually a bit harsher than John. I believe this is on the lower ends of the two. Um, I believe this is more of a 2.25. The little bit that it has going over over the, the, the bare bones two is simply the fact that I did feel... I did feel warm and cuddly at certain moments here, and I really did like select metaphors, but they are very select, and they're they're meager for the album scale. So I I can understand why you guys are giving it such low scores. I just feel like after knowing what I've given threes, this is no worse than those albums. In fact, it's better because it's at least ubiquitously consistent in framework. And so for that, it, it... allows me to push it up because I can listen to it through, where there are plenty of albums we reviewed at threes, Bray Naked Ladies is the first that comes to mind, where I maybe like two songs, and I still gave it a three. Now, is ubiquitously consistent a double negative? That's a double positive again. I guess so. You're all about those today. No, it's, a, it's, it's like the imaginary I. I times I equals negative one. So... Two two positives would technically be a negative. I think it's just redundant. Mm. <laughs> but that also continue. But my my point is is that well, let's start from here. I'm a fan of Andrew McMahon. I've always been, but he's always been someone I've looked at from a distance. I like a handful of his songs, in something corporate and Jack's Mannequin. I never dive deep into any of his albums on an album level. Um, I know plenty of people have. This album coming, as I've mentioned several times already on the show, came from inspiration of it really enjoying his live show it's a shame to me that the energy that's conveyed in his live show is nowhere to be found on this album vocally i get it but musically it's all you know built in a computer for the most part it feels synthesized i don't get a sense of physical instruments i'm sure they're here but i'm finding similar problems though much better songwriting but similar problems to overexposed (coughs) way way back with Maroon 5 and how it was just overly produced this doesn't feel overly overly produced it just feels produced right it doesn't feel like there's physical instruments here except for the piano in moments you know and then some moments like there's a guitar that stands out and stuff like that I will say consistently throughout the album I like his vocals um I really like his voice I always have um but it doesn't do anything mind-blowing for me here um structurally i failed to really see the things that steve saw until he pointed them out i do see them now but i also feel like i may need to sit with this album more i listened to it three or four times but i feel like maybe it requires more and we've discussed that before i mean i sort of liked the 21 pilots when we first reviewed that album now I love that album. Yeah, me too. Deeply. Yeah. And so that happens. And it happened with Bare Naked Ladies too. I don't, I don't like that album by no means. But the three or four songs that I really liked, I still really like. Off of Grinning Streak, episode 53. And so I guess for me, when we're talking about pop albums that can kind of be forgotten, I think to just say this is an album that will be forgotten is too broad. 
often forgotten albums, if they're from a band that has a following, the fans will not forget it. I think if you're a fan of Andrew McMahon and all that he's done across the board, you will like this album. I think there's nothing not to like if you're a fan of his work. However, as a fan of his work but not a hardcore fan, you might find it a little disappointing. But I don't want to just write it off completely. That said, if you heard this and had no idea who he was and heard it in the store, you might quickly forget it. So I would agree there. I kind of regard it as like the make-believe of his repertoire. Fair enough. And make-believe is a pretty forgettable album besides the singles. Yeah. Um, we're referring to Weezer, if you don't know. Um, I always refer to Weezer. That's he also does. true. <laughs> he does. It's true. But I don't want, I'm trying to be less hard on it because I do tr- truly believe that there's something here that I might be missing. And that's happened before. And I don't want to let my inexperience harsh it too much. That said, though, it is pretty repetitive. There is not a lot of imagination as far as song structure goes. But I, on faith, I think, alone, and on what I did get out of it, I want to put it a little bit above a three, but not much. It's just barely skating by, and it's not an average album by any means. It's still a little bit below average if we're considering the 3.5 to be the average of the average. Um, it's a 3-1 for me. You know, it, it just ekes by... And I'm hoping that maybe I can boost it after listening to it more this year. I, I, I think I agree with Steve. I think this is an album that is definitely worth experiencing throughout the year and coming back to an earlier year in review, and I probably will. Yeah, I will definitely be giving it its due. And back to a point you made before about uh, the how fans of his work will absolutely come back. But, but yeah, sure, and absolutely, and, and you should, and you should, yeah. and you should. They should probably do more of the work that maybe we, you know, we were at least not able to see. Maybe because we're not looking at it through the Andrew McMahon lens. Maybe you, most among us. Yeah. But um, and indeed, I guess after this 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 episode, I, I'm almost fearing the fan backlash if there is to be one in right. our comment uh, in our forum. <laughs> we don't always have a forum for every episode, unless it's Star F and and Star F. Yeah. Uh, communicating with me and Star F. But the, there hey, we is read them. there is one thing that I do want to address. Uh, actually, correct in in my search for the connection. It's actually rather obvious the connection between you know transportation and uh, coming of age is the obvious is the simply Movement. getting there. Yeah, is the simply there, the idea of getting there yeah. and the thing that I may have brought up is a Freudian slip in the very beginning of the episode. The idea that, you know, when you cross that boundary from Brooklyn into Manhattan, whether you're just commuting or for whatever purpose, it feels like the biggest leap you can make. You feel like you made it somewhere in life. And I feel that's in in some sense what he's equating his his recent his recent uh enlightened state to. Yeah. A kind of commute. And, and you, that, but it's not enough to change my rating yet. And the main reason is because I do believe that musically, that element I think could have not just saved this album, not just like made it eke over the three for me, but maybe even pushed it into four territory. Had this album had had it pursued that transportation element and intertwined it throughout the entire album in a, in a musical sense and in a thematic sense. I think that's the thing that was sorely lacking. Bookending it with the sounds of the subway, for me, simply is not enough. Fair enough, and I totally get that. Um, but I do want to go back to something I did mention earlier, um, because I think it would be good for a kind of brief closing topic. And it's and I know because I can cite something of Steve specifically after I bring up mine. But so as I've said at length at this point, well, maybe not at length, but to repetition for sure, is that I picked this album because I fell in love with their live show, and I thought, surely the album will represent that. 
not so much. But, you know, we should talk about that a little bit. I mean, I'm sure we've all gone to concerts, seen a band we really liked, and then bought their album, or went and investigated their album after. And the biggest example that I know Steve can probably talk at length about is with Black Violin and Stereotypes. Yeah, that you was You saw the, them first, and then think of the, that. And you picked their album. That now, is true. The, and the live show, I'm pretty sure you said the live show did impact you to pick the album, didn't it? Yes, it absolutely did. No, the they, um, Black Violin, and I hadn't sampled them or anything. You right. know, that was actually a, a, a early music journalism task when yeah. I was working for Classical Light. And it was my first little on-the-road thing, and I was like, all right, this is kind of cool, and it's a nice little warm-up, you know, to start the gig. And uh, Black Violin, I really did not know what to expect. I just saw the, the what would almost seem like a, uh, as a gimmick, you know, bl- classical and, and, and hip-hop didn't seem to make any sense. And then I just saw this shtick come together perfectly, and every Everyone's role was clearly defined, and I saw them do takes on old classical pieces and then sort of, you know, ramp them up and hip-hopify them, and it was actually really fascinating. And I, I tend to be—I have a lot of reservations very often about those gimmicks, and I just saw a lot of finesse in the way they approached it, which made me excited, dare I say even salivating, for their studio album work. Um, but yet the funny thing is that there was a slight little decline because, of course, this discussion is specifically about how that either taints you or promotes something. Right. And there was a slight little decline on the, on the studio album scale mainly because of exactly what you experience today. The hype was a little bit lost. And a lot of what brought me into that particular show was also their story. Their story about how, you know, they had been friends since middle school and they were both in, in middle school orchestra together. And during a second period orchestra, they would be you know playing Bach playing Beethoven and then they would pop in their headphones and on their way to third period they would be listening to Wu-Tang Clan and how just from that such an early age the two things had just been not even parallel but overlapping it just made sense to finally make it a thing of its own and that you you get drawn into that by like the 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 oral telling of their story, which, of course, is not really a component on their album. Well, and that and one little bit was lost, and I guess it, it, it mattered a little bit. I think there's a loss of energy translation sometimes from yeah. live show to album. I mean, it's what we talked about. We imagine Fuego to be like. We imagine that Fish is a band that's probably better live, and on albums it's too constrained and meandering even. Yeah. Well, that's because you're allowed to be improvisational when you're live. You're allowed to work with the crowd, and the crowd is a great feedback system for when sure. building an album live. But the one thing that I think actually, in my opinion, discredits it a little bit, that idea is that I find very few live albums, especially when they're live albums that are actually reproductions of previous albums. Like, say, you release an album and then you go on tour and it's such a success that you make the live version of said album. I find very few of those live albums to actually be, in any way, like, in my opinion, empirically better. Well, yeah, but that's because it's the same energy loss. Because you're not experiencing... The live album. You're you're listening to it, but that's why like live IMAX concerts at a movie theater are closer to that experience. But it's the energy in the room with the people that's non-translatable even in any other form of media. There is on, nothing like a live show in the room with the band. And I think that's what I got from this album when I went to see and saw them open for... Weezer. Also, there was the excitement of getting a band I didn't know I was going to get. Again, I didn't realize Andrew McMahon was something corporate and was Jack's mannequin until 
someone told me. Well, the real test, because I have a little bit of a discrepancy with something you just said, you know, it's not that there is nothing comparable. Very often, you know, I've approached it with the opposite stance, that, that the perfectionism of the perfectionism has kind of a taint to it, but rather, you know, the the perfected product of the work, of the studio album, that there's actually nothing that can come close to that. Right. That, you know, it's it's almost sort of a novelty to experience the live work, because you like to see the artists, you know, doing what they love in front of a live audience, and you get the banter, you get the personality. It's almost like icing on the cake to me, or traditionally that's how I used to see it. But the true test, the true test for me, would be not what happened with Black Violin, of course, that was the opposite way around. You know, I, I I saw a band live, I saw a group live, and then I listened to the album, and I thought, eh, it did go down a little bit. So that would prove your point, that the right. live experience worked in that instance. But I can't actually think of an instance in which I saw a group live, and then I listened to the album, and I was like, this is a million times better. So I, well, I can I, think of a band that... It's not a true test yet. Well, I, I can think of a band for me, though I haven't done it here with them specifically, that I, I heard the albums, loved their albums, and hated them live. Though it could have been an off night. Who knows? I've never seen them again since. But Everclear is a band who have always loved their music, and I love their albums. But live, I saw them open for Matchbox 20, and I was like, meh. Mm. But they were also not the headliner, so it could have been a sound quality thing. It could have been a venue thing. It's hard to know, really. One of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite shows that I've ever been to was the Warp Tour way back when. Asbury Park out See, in Jersey. See, kids, they used to have these concerts. Yeah. They that still were have all Warp day. Tour. I know. They still do. I know. It's where but I saw MC Lars. But my favorite guys at there, uh, less than Jake. Sure. I still have that shirt. Um, Suicide Machine. Still love them. Uh, Bowling for Soup was phenomenal. Sure. And I will say um, uh, Weezer, which I did get to miss. That was a great thing that I got to miss them because they were playing their next freaking day. Still. I had a chance to see Weezer. I'm going to be sour about that. But anyway, uh, I actually discovered Bowling for Soup and Suicide Machine at that concert. Mm -hmm. Their albums are so much better than their live shows. Mm -hmm. Their albums are so much better. And Bowling for Soup, honestly, in my opinion, they should be one of those bands that is better live. They have the energy that, in a stage situation, should be commutable to everybody else you should get addicted you should get just like caught up in everything that's going on because they're they're like a light touch of sky and just a a cacophony of being you know a cheeky little bastard and it's great to have that in a concert the thing is it's so easy to say as a listener you know it should or the music should translate one way or the other the end it comes down to something it comes down to something even simpler than that and it's just the skill sets of the artists Mm. you know certain artists they are a little hesitant for the live performance you know they they wish they had more control they wish they had the control that they had in the studio and others they feel they feel boxed in. They feel penned in by the studio, where it's you know overanalyzing every single every single line, every single note, almost like. <laughs> I remember Conan, Conan O'Brien actually brought this up. I remember on like a roundtable discussion with all the other Simpsons writers back in the day, where of course Conan O'Brien has taken the complete opposite career choice as all those other writers. Once upon a time, they were sitting in the writer's room perfecting a joke, you know, for line after line. They would pass it around 39 times until it had, in Conan's eyes, lost all comedy. But then others might say, no, for an audience who has not witnessed that process, that is perfectionism. That is, that is how you do it. 
But, of course, Conan doesn't feel that way because he's someone who has thrived off of the live scene. He <coughs> went and did his talk shows, and he likes spontaneity. Yeah. So that's just the difference between personalities. And you could actually tell the way those personalities had drifted on that on that uh, roundtable discussion. It's really fascinating. It's like 90 minutes long. Well, I would say, though, an exception that maybe not necessarily proves the rule but kind of helps perpetuate the discussion is you— We've all listened to Prager, and you saw them live. And you specifically told me they were great for different reasons. Because they sounded different than the album, but that wasn't a bad thing. Because you enjoyed the live experience of that band. Great for... I'm not sure I said different reasons. I may have simply said it was about about even. Oh, it was about even. Like, okay. a, because there were a lot of tracks that they played very similarly, you know, mm-hmm. as, as they did on the album. Maybe minus a couple of instruments here and there, right. you know, because they're always shuffling around who they play with. But uh, there was, it was nice to see some of the little surprises, like mm-hmm. obviously the the, the basic one being tempo change, you know? Sure. Fans aren't instinctively going to know to play at the same BPM every single time, sure. and a lot of times they need to, need to make adjustments for the live scene, you know? Sure. They're under under the clock, and in this case, they were. They were really under the clock for, of all pieces, Transit. You know, right. the second track, one of my favorites on the entire album, and I heard it at what it is a rushed pace for sure, but was kind of invigorating at the same time. Sure. You know? I, I could do that on Audacity with the damn track, but, like, it's not <laughs> it's the not same. the same. But yeah, I think it's. I think ultimately, because obviously, it's going to always be a case by case basis. That's kind of the human experience when engaging in music. But I feel like it is interesting that I was spurred on to bring this based on a live experience, as you have done in the past. But also, it doesn't always work out that way. And I think it's what always keeps me interested in experience music in as many different forms as I can. Is the fact that from presentation to presentation, it could change completely. And next, we're going to talk about the live show that gets produced into a DVD, which then gets marketed as a whole separate album or something, something like that. There's a rabbit hole we can go down on this. Bull Probably. In the Bible. Recommendation to any of our listeners, if you like Green Day, especially American Idiot, Bull in the Bible was an experience that, honestly, the video, I felt, was actually better than both the compositional album uh-huh. and the original American Idiot album. Interesting. I loved it. It was great. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. Hard no sell. kidding. All right. Green Day used to be great. Don't. Before we move on to what we're doing next week, Steve, do you have a musical term of the week? I do, but it's not even a word. It's not even a term. It's a suffix. Oh, here we go. Go for it. I got it. All right. The suffix is, imagine any word, any prefix, any anything, that would precede isimo. Bravissimo. True. Well, that's a good example. That's a very good example. Sure. Another example would be fortissimo, pianissimo. What do you think isimo means? It modifies the previous word to mean a little bit of said word. Not a little bit. Or a lot. Okay, the opposite then. Grand. Extremely. Extremely. So slow down extremely as opposed to slow down a little bit, which is what I thought I meant. True, and, well, and like, in the so case of, in the case of pianissimo, very or extremely soft. In yeah. the case of fortissimo, very loud. And the funny thing is that, and of course, this is symbolized by you know, if if you're talking about piano and forte, then piano would be the P, and the forte would be the F in sheet music. And then if you want to say fortissimo, then you have a double F. You have FF, and then a lot of times they say fortississimo. That's FFF. 
So extremely, extremely, extremely. And you can just compress that into one word. I don't know if that's like proper Italian, but that is the way musicians have approached this in piano when they want to be silly throughout the centuries. And so you do say fortissimo if you want to talk about matters of insane degree. Actually, uh, I, I, was, I was reading a thread. I can't remember what Reddit subreddit I was on. And they were going on about the different levels of Fs they've seen. And one guy had a story about him and the rest of the tuba section that saw eight Fs. Eight Fs. Okay, so... so forte, 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 fortissimo, fortissimo. But for the tuba section... That's almost impossible. Which would blow but, out eardrums. But uh, yeah, you could kill a cat from fifteen yards away but it's impossible with that kind also of a sound. The tuba has trouble projecting. Like it really does. Like yeah, you, you'd be much it. better think off of with it. a trumpet. A, a trumpet it can project. A trumpet oh, a different can story, blow out your ear, eardrum. But same thread. Somebody with the, this was actually a, a series of one upmanship trumpeters with six, and then one of those giant kettle drums with twelve. Which I don't know how you do that. I don't get it. Like, that's just trolling somebody. Uh, a kettle drum with 12 Fs. 12 Fs, which is essentially you're breaking the drum. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to get a nice even, you know, something that wouldn't pierce the drum, and it's spread out across all the surface area, and then drop it from the top of the stage. So essentially a giant frying pan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, essentially. That would, yeah. Get, that would do essentially, it. Essentially, and some really, really tight, you know, leather, holding down of that leather. <laughs> all right. Well... That was educational in I'm not quite sure what way, but it was. Sure, we learned now something. Now you know other ways to say more and a lot. Aren't you happy? Isimo. Yeah, we'll find terrible ways to work that in that Mor- don't make Morissimo. any sense. Morissimo. Morissimo, exactly. <laughs> Which is Very like the name more. of Morris. Very Morris. Morissimo. That sounds like, what was the name of Sherlock Holmes' adversary? Oh, Moriarty. Uh, Moriarty. Moriarty. Okay, no, nothing no, like no, nothing, nothing like no, it all. No, no. All right, great. Uh, Steve, on that note, why don't you take us on what we're doing next week? All right. Well, this is not my pick for next week. In fact, if it was a normal week, it would be John's. But it is, seeing as I announce these things, it is a listener pick. And who is it from? Our almost annual trusted suggester, the mysterious Mark H. Almost every single year he's been doing this. This would be the third year in a row, uh, only a little bit off. It's like a year and change each time, so it's going to get slowly pushed around, and maybe we'll catch up in like 30 years or so. <laughs> uh, and then we'll, he'll, we'll have was lost his last a year. Pick? Was he the Hurt and the Merciless? Was that him? No, that was, uh, that was Jose. Oh, that was All Jose. Right, so the first pick by the mysterious Mark H in episode 128 was Black Messiah by D'Angelo the Vanguard. Right. That's yes. right. The second pick was. Is a very enjoyable one for us. Episode 181, FFS. Oh, by that's FFS. right. He's following up FFS. Which is, right. which is okay. I got that's, you got a standard to live up to. No, don't expect that same kind of consistency because he has a little bit of a thesis behind this one. The comment goes, "Hey there." Thought it was about time to make another request, and based on John's comments in this episode, which would be the previous episode of Flaming Lips, I thought instead of sending you an album from the past year that I really liked, I thought I'd throw you a curveball and suggest the album Headspace by Issues. Now, I have not yet listened to this. It makes me wonder what he means by curveball. It makes me I wonder think, what he means by John's comments. I, think, would he, I, 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 I would think love it, to know the comment. I think it means that the last two albums he picked, both D'Angelo and FFS, he loved and wanted to see how we felt about loving yeah. them. I think he hates this album. Hates or is middle middle road. In fact, I believe that was the discussion, you know, at yeah. the end of last week's episode. Oh, yeah. We discussed... 
uh, how our, our tastes are evolving, how perceptions change over time, and we made a few kind of just, you know, indiscriminate calls out there to whatever audience is yeah. listening at that given time to say, well, you know what, maybe this is a good a good route, and since we like, you know, searching and finding albums that we're kind of middle road on, and that way we can find something we really like or really hate about it, then, you know, it might be a good idea for a listener I only to kind of want it to be something he really hates because I don't know that we've had a listener actually do that, <coughs> and so I'm intrigued. I mean, if it's middle of the road, same, too. Only a I'm, guess. Just... Robert. Robert did not oh, like yeah. Hazard's oh, he, Alien. He did hate Hazard's an Alien, that's right. And this was actually kept from me up until, like, the last 30 seconds when it was announced. Yeah. Uh, I was already looking at this album. You were looking at it. I was oh, already were, looking at this album it. to bring it on. Yes. It's a metal album. For that what I was... reason? Uh, I didn't choose it, and I'm going to hold all my comments until we actually do it Sounds next good. week. Because Sounds it's... good. But, uh, but you don't get the credit. Mark Mr. Mr. March, Mark H., uh, we are on a very uh, eerie wavelength right now. And I think we're I on think... a first-name basis at this point. You can call him Mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel, like, I feel like I might have met my musical soul brother right now. Like, wow. Like, wow. this is weird. I don't know if this we should be weird. insulted or what. Because, I mean, we're sitting right here, Steve. Let's get a few more albums Wait, in. No, you know, but Mark, we're supposed to a have, few more years. We're supposed to have discussions and differences, and we're not supposed to be always on the same wavelength. But this guy is like, it's scary. No, I it just like scary. that you know, he's following, he's trying to give <laughs> us. In, in many ways, I remember that uh, his suggestion, FFS, was was based around pursuing our taste, our, our, our at the time, in, enjoyment of theatrical music. Yeah, he was, you know? he was catering to our taste yeah. with that. Yeah. This, so. probably not so much. But either way, Actually, we Actually, he's take... catering to our request. That's yeah, actually no, we may come to my regret request, the request. request. We, we, we don't know that I'll take, yet. I'll take, I'll take credit for this one. Fair very, enough. Very interesting. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Mysterious Mark H. We will take that on next week. And until then, remember, as always, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.